Thank you, Bill. And uh, I promise not to stay up here too long because I don't want to get in the way of uh, the rich panel that we have uh, assembled today. Uh, I'm really pleased uh, to have on hand. And uh, half of a day is a chunk of time for uh, these people to take out of their schedules, as I'm sure it is uh, in your case as well. Well, I thought I'd pay my homage to uh, weather, starting off with a slide here, a picture I took the other night, one of the great thunderstorms that rolled through Washington, D.C. in early June. Actually, it should be July, but it seems like it's off a bit as the temperatures are. Uh, anyway, I wanted to have a good play this morning on this whole notion of communication. And, uh, and I wanted to circle the wagons around a couple of themes within communication. I didn't want to just kind of be broad brushed about it. I wanted to get focus in on a couple of nuggets of uh, what I would call the kernel issues in communication and how we crack them and uh, what our respective roles and responsibilities might be to one another, one another being journalists, uh, um, scientists, scientists certainly speaking in the public venue, speaking to journalists, uh, and so on. And so I wanted to uh, invite a number of people that are sitting here this morning to uh, be present and see if we couldn't really surround this kind of discussion. And then leave the other half of this open to a, a conversation, basically, involving yourselves and everybody up here on the panel. So, uh, so I thought I'd just take a few minutes. Uh, we're videotaping this because, uh, well, I personally hate to do something and not have a multiplier effect. In other words, I'd like to have it live in posterity as well. It's worth doing. It's probably worth preserving and repeating, or at least have other people have a look at it. Because there's a lot of interest in communication, in particular, and uh, given this panel up here today, especially so, I think a lot of folks will want to hear what was said here today. And so we want to have that available for people beyond this room at another time, whenever, and put it on our website. So that's why the camera's here today, and and uh, <clears throat> that's not an apology. It's just an explanation. Um, let me start by uh, quickly, and I, I, I don't mean to sort of uh, downplay the serious credentials of everybody up here, but I thought I'd walk through uh, everybody on the panel and uh, talk about their background a little bit before I get started here. I'm going to start with Bill Blakemore from ABC TV News. I didn't realize until I read through the details of his biography that he was with ABC for 35 years. Um, it's almost unheard of to find somebody who's been in this business, TV broadcast business, for that length of time. Um, it, it's just remarkable. And over that span of time, um, he's covered everything from, from 11 wars, uh, the Vatican during Pope, Pope John Paul II throughout his entire tenure at the Vatican. Uh, he was stationed in Rome for six years. We've got to feel really bad about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. So, uh, and, uh, you know, all the way to global warming, um, psychology and journalism, teaching uh, journalism, the trade of journalism. 
Um, talk about being all over the map and been awarded and decorated with uh, any number of awards uh, as you read through uh, his biography. It's just remarkable. Been everywhere, done everything, covered just about every issue out there, and is now honed in on global warming as the most recent sort of uh, aspect of uh, his focus of attention. So I'm really pleased to have him on hand. Uh, next in line is uh, Seth Bornstein right here, so you don't get images confused with names. Uh, he's with the Associated Press. Uh, he's been there a couple of years, uh, not uh, uh, not without fanfare as well. He won the Scripps Foundation Journalism Award in 2006, or 2000. Uh, I'm sorry, 2008. Uh, in 2004, he won the uh, Society of Environmental Journalists uh, Beat Reporting Award. Uh, has distinguished him, himself in environmental science writing. Um, and he's covered a variety of science issues ranging from NASA, NASA launches to tissue transplants to uh, global warming. You've seen a number of his pieces picked up by various uh, newspapers around the country and around the world. Um, and his former life was with Knight Ritter newspapers before they closed down a few years back, which is a theme that you'll hear Tom Rosenstiel talk about, the sort of loss of people in this business. Uh, Ed Maybach, who isn't here yet, but is on his way. He had to drop his kids off this morning before he got here. But he's a um, communications uh, director involved uh, in focusing his efforts on communication of climate change. He had this epiphany while hiking in the Alps with uh, a researcher in Europe and decided that at that moment, uh, climate change was the biggest issue of his time and the biggest issue he could see out there and decided to focus his sociological communication background explicitly on climate change. He's here at George Mason University and he's highly regarded for uh, his skill and his trade. Last but hardly least is uh, Tom Rosenstiel, far end of the uh, table here. Uh, Tom heads the Project for Excellence in Journalism. He's the director of that. Uh, they're a think tank that tracks the craft of journalism, what's being said, how journalism, uh, how people in journalism are um, pursuing their craft, the quality, uh, content, so on, trends, story trends. Uh, he's also vice chairman of the Committee of Concerned Journalists, a project engaged in conducting uh, national conversation among journalists about standards and values. <clears throat> In my mind, this piece of work is the most critical piece of work out there. I, I have the highest regard and uh, I can't say enough about the efforts that he and uh, Bill Kovach have mounted to try and buttress standards and values in journalism. In other words, uh, trying to convince journalists to get anchored back to the fundamental principles of professional journalism. And we'll hear a lot about that this morning. Uh, <clears throat> lastly, before running you through some slides, I want to recommend this book. Elements of journalism. No. Elements of journalism. What newspaper people should what news people should know 
and the public should know and expect from journalism and journalists. Uh, word for word, this thing is probably worth its weight in gold. This is, if you ever read one volume on communication of journalism, read this book, just reprinted in 2007. I've read it a couple of times, and every time I go through it, I find something else I didn't realize. This is one of the most thoughtful things I've ever, I've ever read, I think, in my X many years. So, uh, and this wasn't staged, by the way. I didn't work a deal with Tom. This is just really a great piece of work. Okay, on with the business at hand. <clears throat> uh, I wanted to start out by saying quite simply that uh, I think we all agree communication is important. Uh, but I think you need to take it a step further. Uh, you can't pull it out of your back pocket. Uh, it takes work. It takes understanding. And I think as scientists, the best way I would come at this is think of it as a research problem. In other words, you have to work at this. Um, and we've had a number of examples in science, especially in climate change, of people pulling it out of their back pockets at the appropriate time. And guess what? We've got more bullet holes in people's feet walking around with bandages in this profession uh, because they weren't prepared for this sort of engagement. And as I said, I wanted to hone in on a couple of elements within journalism. I want to get back to the core of journalism. And I think most journalists would agree if you ask them what's the core principle guiding their profession, they would say, I think, objectivity, or the search for facts, the search for truth. In other words, a process of trying to dig out the truth, and how do you know it's true? Uh, a method of verification. Uh, roots of this objectivity go back to Walter Lippmann, um, um, who basically said, we need some kind of scientific approach to journalism, way back in 1920. Uh, in, in, in essence, to give people the confidence and information they go ahead and make decisions, knowing that information is credible and verifiable. Okay, this was way back in 1920. Ah, but he said at the same time the journalist, and Tom uh, Rosenstein and others have said this after the fact, is not objective, but his method can be, or her method can be. The same holds true for science. Uh, look, we, we all come at science, we've got personal biases, we lock on to things, we love our own theories about this or that. And it's only by virtue of the peer review process that we begin to get stripped of those personal biases that we all have. We're loaded with them. There's no way around it. And that's what objectivity, a method, a process of verification, a method of verification, helps us sort of wade through. In the science community, we do peer review submit our papers to scientific journals. In journalism, we'll hear more about how that's done, how objectivity is achieved uh, in journalism and how people go about it. Uh, it's not neutrality. It's not a neutral voice. Uh, it's not balance. It's not fairness. It's none of the above. Uh, as I said before, uh, this is the central function of journalism, uh, uh, um, verifying facts. However, the dilemma is um, that this 
discipline of verification uh, is also one of the great confusions within journalism and has been for a long time. Like there are so many takes on objectivity in journalism that it's, it's hard to really put a rope around it. Uh, and the original idea is thoroughly misunderstood. Uh, you can talk to any 10 journalists, I think, and get perhaps 10 different definitions of objectivity and 10 different descriptions of methods by which he or she goes about pursuing how to verify facts. Uh, the state of objectivity today, it exists in pieces. Here's a, a, a piece I pulled from Tom Rosenstiel's book. Uh, uh, this sampling here, the survey was done, I think, in 1999, and they asked journalists, uh, what are your strategies for verifying reporting? And the overwhelming answer was trial and error, on my own or from a friend. Um, and uh, I think those are pretty uh, tough lines. I mean, uh, we in science, I think, have, have the luxury of a long history uh, of peer review. And, uh, and we all sort of buy into it. Uh, and that's not to say that peer review is the holy grail of objectivity. It can be assailed, it has been assailed. There are papers that get through the literature that are really weak. But I would argue it's a, uh, it is a standard, it's an effective standard, even though I would argue it's a sort of least common denominator. Uh, <clears throat> Does science, does the objectivity in science serve as a model for journalism? I would argue it does, but the real question comes down to how do you translate it into journalism? I mean, there is no peer review journalistic uh, process within journalism. It's a different sort of play altogether. And so how do you sort of take the notion of objectivity and make it meaningful within journalism circles? And we'll hear more about that today. What's the role of editors in, in upholding journalistic standards? Not choosing what part of the paper the story goes in or how much space the story gets, but what about journalistic standards? Do editors play a role and what is that role? Uh, have we in the science community done due diligence in communication? I would argue we haven't even scratched the surface. What should we expect from one another as communities? In other words, this book here, Tom Rosenstiel and Bill Kovach have written, the byline on the bottom, the subtitle is What the Public Should Expect. What should journalists expect from us in the science community in terms of communication, and how do we attain it? How do we get there? How do we live up to the expectations? And secondly, do our institutions help us realize our expectations and achieve those standards that we hold high? Or are our institutions failing as well in reinforcing our standards? Okay, uh, <clears throat> that said, way back again in 1920, Walter Lippmann got discouraged. And he basically said, uh, you know, by uh, looking at the uh, studies in psychology and persuasion at the time, he began to realize or fear that the problem, the problem being failures of the press being remedied by more responsible reporting, 
that the average citizen could make intelligent judgments if presented with the facts. In other words, even if you had a press that bought into objectivity, did a great job, okay, perfect, you know, everybody was verifiable, you could look at the piece, you could come out with the same conclusions, interview the same people, have the same reasons why you did it. All that aside, that uh, the problem went beyond censorship, ignorance, or distortion. It went to the very nature and workings of the human perception and the human mind. He began to realize people don't make rational choices most of the time. Okay, This was way back in 1920. So this gets at the very heart of, I think, where scientists often want to come from. That is a world based on facts. And perhaps media want to come there, too, because we all both agree as communities that we're digging out facts and truth, whatever truth might be. Uh, we as humans, we don't automatically and objectively see what's before our eyes. We filter the world through, as George Lakoff would say, frames and metaphors we have in our heads. And if somehow there's a match of that information as that goes through and sort of encounters these frames we have, um, you know, they either buy the frame or buy the, what's being said or don't buy it or have some kind of half measure in between. So that was the dilemma I think Lippmann sort of walked into at the time. He was pushing for this objectivity, and at the same time he began to realize, oh, even if I get there, where am I? Have I solved the problem? The problem is larger than he realized, I think, and that's where we are today, I think. So here I am. Fast forward, enter framing. Well, it's not new. It's probably new to me, people in the science community, because we don't get into cognitive linguistics literature. We don't get into sociological literature, typically. We don't get into psychological literature, all of which has great bearing on how we communicate information, so-called facts, and whether anybody is going to take those facts on board. Uh, George Lakoff. Uh, identifies or lists these myths like the truth will set us free if we just tell people the facts. How many times in the science community have we just told people the facts? And guess what? We come up short and you read these surveys like John Krasnick produces and they say, we're so disappointed because people didn't behave in accordance with the facts that we laid out. And so, uh, and then you hear comments like, uh, well, how dumb can the public be? Didn't they hear what I said? Well, they did hear what you said. They just didn't process it the same way. Uh, do facts and reason alone inform? I mean, you've asked these questions of yourselves. Uh, you know, and is there a difference between uh, providing information and information that makes people alter their behavior. In other words, we can provide all the information we want, but will that information or will the packaging of that information make people make different choices? Not make them, but at least sort of trigger something in their head. Uh, do frames trump facts? Uh, I would say frames don't trump facts. I would say facts need a delivery system and those delivery systems need to be tied to values. In other words, the things that we value. Uh, you know, there was a piece that showed up in the Columbia Journalism Review, do we need a rhetoric beat? In other words, do we need somebody in the media 
whose job it is is to look over the uh, journalistic reporting and say, look, here's a frame, and I'm going to unpackage this frame to tell you what the ingredients of this frame are. Be careful because you may be buying into something that sounds like something that you really don't want to walk into. In other words, here's a couple of frames that I've listed here. Uh, you can. Uh, there's been a discussion about uh, estate tax. Well, one way of pitching it or framing it is to call it a death tax. And that has a very different connotation than you have, it, as it, it opposed to calling it an estate tax. Uh, enhanced interrogation techniques versus, versus torture. Uh, unlawful enemy combatants versus prisoner of war after 9-11. Very different in your head. 9-11 is an act of war versus 9-11 as an act of mass murder. Very different notions begin to arise in your head. Global warming versus climate variability. Climate variability, what's that? Weather, everything. Uh, and, and I'm getting to the close here. Changing your mind isn't like changing your body. This is from the jacket to George uh, Lakoff's new book, The Political Mind, Why You Can't Understand 21st Century American Politics with an 18th century brain. And I don't mean to say politics broadly, I mean to say political choices. In other words, people will make political choices about every aspect of science that gets into the legislative process. Okay, and so science will be played out in this, uh, in, in this realm and frames will be important. And unfortunately, people don't use an objective system of reasoning. Unfortunately or not. I mean, uh, I don't want to pass value judgment. I want to say that that's the way people's heads are wired. Deep psychological roots to communications. Uh, here's a, just a few vignettes. Uh, did you know, for example, that when accusations or assertions are met with science, or silence, I'm sorry, they're more likely to feel true to the average person looking on. We tend to react, especially in science, to myths, lies, and bad information by countering them with accurate information. The paradox, however, in psychological literature tells us that denials or clarifications can reinforce the myth that we're trying to unpackage and so have a completely perverse consequence. Um, and uh, one of our speakers this morning will address that. Ed Maybeck will talk to uh, and this has great significance, I think, for journalism as well. In other words, I argue this point has meaning in terms of journalists doing the best they can to get the story as right as they can from the get-go, because of this very fact. If you load people up with information or information that proves to be incorrect five hours down the road, you're going to have a hard time rewiring those people's heads. As George Lakoff said, it's like changing body parts. You've got a, a really daunting task on your head. It's better to do the best job you can up front, and then whatever cleanup is necessary thereafter down the road. One final thought, hearing something over and over again, even from untrustworthy sources, can make it feel true and that it came from multiple independent sources. This is what happens during repetition. People begin to have these notions that it came from a variety of people, 
And all of a sudden, uh, you've got a whole population buying into this thing, and it doesn't even have to be credible sources. Let me leave you with this and turn the podium over to Tom Rosenstein. <laughs> I tried to walk through this one day, and uh, one of the presidents of the reinsurance, uh, president of the reinsurance association of America, who used this one time, said to me, "I think I know what that means." <laughs> and I said, "I don't want to know. I'm glad that you can work your way through this, but I don't think I really want to know." Anyway, it's all yours, Tom. I can't follow that. <laughs> oh, come on. Hey, Tom, can we ask? questions now? Or? Uh, I would, you know, if you don't mind, if we can hold them, we'll have a good two hours of questions. I'm not trying to be evasive. Uh, which one is yours? Mine's right here. Ah. Is this his? No. No, mine's his on Jan, can you... Uh, okay, so while that's happening, yeah, sure. you can ahead. take a question? Yeah. Uh, so, I think uh, one of the points you brought up, uh, sort of, um, even we, we give people facts, and the correct facts, and, and they, they may or... Could you use the microphone? Absolutely. I know so. Yeah, by example, when you have a question, because we're being taped, I'm going to ask you to go to the mic. Okay. Uh, so, so you mentioned and, and use a few examples uh, from books about even when people have the facts and the facts are stated correctly and verified, etc., they may not make good decisions. And, and one of the interpretations of that is that people don't always make rational decisions. Now, there's an alternative interpretation which kind of ties into a topic that has come up a lot in the past 10 days, which is that when people make decisions, the facts upon which they make those decisions include those other, others than the ones that you are putting into the topic, which is something that we need to keep in mind, for example, when we're providing scientific information, um, you know, we, we become policy relevant, not necessarily policy prescriptive. And maybe, does that apply also to journalism? You know, are, are there common problems that come up? Uh, um. Or yeah. should we explore that later throughout the day? <laughs> oh, if you're going to answer that, Tony, you have to use the mic. There we go. Right here. There we go. Um, yes, I agree. People do add. Can you hear this? Are you picking it? Okay, yeah, all right, yeah. Um, yeah, people do add things to what was said. In other words, uh, you know, uh, just like this thing that occurred a minute ago, our heads are sort of open to all of the noise surrounding the facts coming through it all. So there's competition for what's getting into our heads collectively, so absolutely right. And how does that translate in the end? Well, it adds to the, to, to the process. It, it, White noise, as we would say in science. Well, we'll pick it up, please.
here and stand where you can see me so I'm not in the dark quite so much. Uh, what I'm going to do is uh, very briefly in about 10 minutes give you the state of the news media as a background for uh, the rest of the conversation we're going to have this morning. Uh, and after that uh, I will segue back to the subject that Tony introduced uh, about how do we know things and, and how do we trust the media. Uh, um, but uh, Tony wanted me to sort of give a, a little bit of background first for those of you uh, who are scientists and not journalists about generally what's going on in the world of journalism, in the world of media uh, uh, as a background uh, because the world that we three live in is going through uh, a transformation that is larger than anything that we've seen in, in our lifetimes and probably is you know, and, and uh, despite the fact that he's been at ABC 35 years, uh, 38, um, what we're to, what, what's going on in the, in the news business today is uh, almost equivalent to the invention of the printing press. It's larger than the invention of television. It's larger than the invention of radio. Um, it's probably larger than the invention of the telegraph in the 1840s, which created the sense of contemporaneous knowledge or people learning things at the same time or across the country. Um, what's going on now is so fundamental that nobody in the news business knows where it's going. Um, what, what's going on is that uh, the delivery system by which uh, you all get your news and information has exploded. And it's exploded uh, in a sort of a, a series of cascades. First you had, uh, well, uh, 30 years ago, uh, you had three TV channels. And at, uh, at, at, when the evening news came on, 90% of the people who were watching television, and that was 70% of the country, was watching the three nightly newscasts. Uh, the most admired man in America was the CBS anchorman Walter Cronkite. He had, when Cronkite came back from Vietnam in 1968 and said the war is not winnable, Lyndon Johnson turned to uh, Bill Moyers and said if we've lost uh, Cronkite, we've lost the American public. They were that powerful in the way that they shaped our understanding of the world around us. Today, that is all gone. There is a, but what is happening is more complex and more nuanced than a lot of people expected. A lot of people believe, particularly at the beginning, sort of the internet age, 10 years ago, that what would happen was that journalists would disappear because citizens would be able to communicate directly with each other, share news, and that a billion citizen journalists talking directly to each other would be more accurate, faster, closer to events, uh, and would not have 
the false notion of a kind of professional objectivity that had deluded journalists, particularly in America, and brought us to the pathetic state of ignorance that we'd achieved uh, thanks to the benefit of corporate American journalism. Uh, and that essentially uh, professional journalism would disappear and we would speak directly to each other. Well, journalism is going through a devastating time, but that's not exactly why. That's not exactly what happened. Uh, we do a report every year at, at my project called the State of the American uh, News Media, and I'm going to just hit a couple of highlights from that report uh, this year. Um, the first finding in this year's report is, as we survey the landscape, is that the uh, that prediction of sort of the decimation of professional journalism isn't what happened. And particularly in newspapers, which are the form of, of media that are being hit the hardest right now, the one you're reading about, uh, is the print newspaper going to be dead in five or ten years? What's gone on and what's devastated the American newspaper business, uh, a little bit different than what's affected television, uh, is not loss of audience. Uh, the media are not being democratized in the way that a lot of people predicted. Why do I say that? Well, um, more people actually consume what traditional media now produce than did before. For instance, uh, just there are many different measures of this, but for instance, the top ten newspapers in print in the United States uh, uh, represent 19% of all newspaper circulation. The top 10 newspaper websites in the United States, newspaper websites, represent 29% of uh, news newspaper web traffic. So they're actually a larger concentration of, uh, of media uh, online uh, by a lot of different measures. Here are the top 10 news websites, or, or websites that provide news and information. And they're all growing, except for one of them. This is last year. This is 06. This is 07. Yahoo, source is all wire copy. MSNBC, wire copy. CNN, AOL News, New York Times, Gannett, ABC, Google, which is aggregating traditional news, USA Today, CBS News. There's one study that's been done by a guy at the uh, University of Arizona. Uh, and he looked at all, tr all the traditional news websites uh, uh, using HitWise data and all of the new alternative news and blog websites that are citizen media. The traditional media website audience is 300 times larger than all of the hundreds of thousands of citizen media websites. So this notion of a long tail in which a million little sites would be a bigger market than the old media that hasn't happened, and these are growing. Whereas most citizen websites are small, they uh, emerge, they disappear. Um, uh, there's a lot of movement and foment, but uh, that what we sort of the initial idea that it would be a, a revolution that would eliminate the old hasn't happened in quite the way that people predicted. The biggest issue in the news business is not loss of audience, but the decoupling of news and advertising. 
What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is that the New York Times audience is roughly, uh, gets about roughly half its audience now on the online. Half its audience is online, half reads the print newspaper. But the New York Times only makes 7% of its revenue online. So half its audience is only bringing in 7% of its revenue. Why? Because it turns out that at the moment, the web is not a very good platform for advertising. Online, the web is more like yellow pages. You don't really need a news story to get an ad. If I want to find out about Toyota, I don't have to wait for the TV news to come on to see the Toyota ad. At 3 in the morning, I can go to Toyota's website. Um, uh, so not only do advertisers not really need the news to piggyback on, but online, that ad that pops up in front of the story I want to read is an annoyance that I want to click away. Whereas when I open up the Sunday paper, uh, 10 years ago at least, many of you 10 years ago were so young that you probably didn't you know, read the newspaper at all, but um, 10 years ago, people would wait around for the Sunday paper because they couldn't wait to see the inserts that would fall out of the paper and tell them you know, what, what are the, what's on sale at Best Buy. Well, now you can go to Best Buy's website whenever you want and find out the same information. You don't need the Sunday paper in the same way. And that full page ad in the, in the, on the back page of that section of the New York Times tells you, wow, the Apple just dropped the price of its laptop by $300. Um, well, there is no full page ad online. There are these little banners and there's little things like that. So this new, the audience is migrating to the net for news and information and advertisers are not going with them. And that's the devastating reality that's challenging the news business. At the Washington Post, where we here live, Don Graham told me that not one retail display local advertiser, which is where he gets all the money for the Washington Post, has bought an ad on WashingtonPost.com. His whole business model is local people buying local goods and services through local ads in print. His audience online is spread around the whole world, and most of them are not in Washington. He doesn't even know how to sell ads to these people. Um, okay, so some of this I've already said. Uh, these are details you probably don't care about. Um, but basically, uh, it would take, by projections that we've done, about 15 years for the internet advertising to reach the point where print advertising is. If it continued to grow at 36% as it did two years ago, but last year it dropped to 26% growth. And in the news business, the growth in advertising online is now in single digits. So the news business just ain't going to get there using advertising. And, and to give you an idea of how important advertising is and why this is changing everything, the average American newspaper makes 80% of its revenue from advertising and only 20% from circulation. And the TV news business, ain't no circulation revenue. It's 100% advertising. So if advertising is, is decoupling from news, how are we gonna subsidize the gathering of news and information in American society. How are you going to know what's going on if there's no reporters uh, to, to, um, to pay for it? Um, some of this stuff, I think, is so, uh, is so detailed that it, it, it's sort of off point. But journalists now recognize that 
that, that economics, not ethics, not infotainment, not loss of audience, that economics is their biggest concern. Um, in 2004, 30% said economics was their biggest problem. Four years later, the majority see it that way. They don't see their bosses as the problem. They don't see uh, their stupid editor as the problem. They see the fact that they ain't got no advertising as the problem. Um, the other thing that is going on in the news business is um, that while the audience is not uh, disappearing from traditional media, it is disappearing from individual outlets. Bill Blakemore works for ABC News. He's a really good journalist, despite that piece. No, I'm just kidding. I was teasing about a piece. Um, network e evening newscasts have half the audience they had 20 years ago. Half the audience. Um, why? Because although you haven't abandoned traditional news, you have gone to cable and then to the internet and other places that are traditional news to get your news and information. When ABC News has half as many people watching uh, uh, at uh, its evening newscast, guess what? It now has half of, roughly half as many people working there. Bill may actually have a, a better number than the one that we've been try trying to puzzle out. But you have half as many reporters. You've materially changed the nature and the quality of the product that you're able to offer to people. Um, uh, they were talking about how Bill has covered all these beats. Well, he better because he's got, you know, they, he, you, you've got to be a lot more nimble than you were uh, when you could put, you know, our man in Havana and keep him there uh, for five years and he, and he or she just sort of covered that one little uh, area of expertise. Um, okay, journalists are, as a co the consequence of this, as the audience fragments uh, across more outlets, is that uh, you've got fewer reporting resources in each of these places. You also have this other change, which is that the way that we as consumers consume news and information is radically altering because I no longer have to rely on these two guys to be my gatekeeper. I can now get news whenever I want, and I can get the news that I want to get. It's a news-on-demand culture. In a sense, the revolution in technology is shifting power away from the journalist as the news provider or gatekeeper to you as a consumer becoming your own editor. When you Google information, you are consuming news in a dramatically different way than you did 15 years ago when you'd pick up the Sunday paper or, the, or the, the paper in the morning and put your feet up and just read whatever it was that the newspaper wanted to tell you. Or when you watched the evening news and you had to sort of watch the stories in sequence. About as much, you know, the only initiative or independence you had in reading the daily newspaper is you could either put it down or you could choose which of the stories you wanted to read, but they were agenda setting in a very strong way. When you Google a news site or go to Google News or go to Yahoo or do a search, you are hunting for the information that you're looking for. And you may cast through those links, click on something, and if it doesn't answer the question you're looking for, you click back and go to the next link. Because you're now your own editor. 
even if you've never written a blog and are not a producer of any kind of news at all, you're consuming news in a much more proactive way. And I would venture to say, and this is something I do all the time, I'd ask people, what, what did you do yesterday in terms of news consumption? You're going to raise your hand, if I did that in this room, you'd raise your hand like six, seven, eight, ten times. I, yeah, I watched this, I did that, I checked this, I did that. That also is a radical departure from, where we, from the way you would answer that question ten years ago, when most of us had a primary news provider. And today we don't. In a sense, you're your primary news provider. And you're the one who decides which of the many, many sources that you could go to that you're going to draw from uh, that day. Uh, you may not even remember where you went yesterday and learned a certain thing. It's a, there's a, all kinds of uh, psychological research that shows that if I asked you, where did you read that story, you'd think, where was it? Was it there or there? And you'll tend to think that it was the most credible place that you visited yesterday, if you believed it. Uh, which is, by the way, why political ads are often designed to look like news. Because uh, you don't want to think you learned something from a political ad, but you, uh, but you do want to think you're looking at something that you learned something from the news. Um, so that's the backdrop that's uh, uh, against which the news business is now operating. We're trying to figure out in our business uh, in print especially, okay, people still like what we produce, but we don't have a way to pay for it. The economic model that we've used, which is to essentially create a credible space for news and then rent that space to an advertiser because that makes their advertising more credible, that's falling apart. It's literally falling apart. And in television, that space was uh, based on uh, the same uh, principle, but their audience is fragmented across a, 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 a new landscape. Um, uh, their advertising isn't disappearing in the same way it is in print, but their audience is fragmenting even more rapidly uh, than it is in, in print. Uh, and so we've got to figure out in uh, print a new economic model, and in television they have to figure out a new delivery system so that they can reach their audience, which, by the way, isn't home at 6.30 anymore. Uh, and it doesn't want to sit around and, and take it in the form uh, that uh, TV news now presents it. Um, so the biggest shift in all of this is the shift from the gatekeeper, the journalist, as the narrator of your news to you being your own narrator. And that leads us to the question of how do you as a scientist or how do you as a consumer uh, decide what's credible, how do you communicate in a way that's credible, how do you decide whether a journalist is credible uh, or not. Let me just see if there's any other slides here that... Um, uh, I, th this does speak to the question of the way that news habits are shifting. Uh, blogs, which is one form of citizen media, the number of blogs is doubling, and there are about 72-something million blogs in the world now. It, that number is doubling every 320 days, according to research that was done last year. And most of those blogs go dormant very quickly, uh, has a very small audience. But this is an expression of people wanting to communicate with each other. It's a small part of our news consumption, but every new thing pulls people away from 
you know, scatters people or fragments them even more. This is not necessarily viewed by traditional journalists anymore as just a threat. In fact, when we did a survey uh, late last year of journalists about new technology, the majority of them said they think that this stuff is good. Uh, users posting comments on news sites saying, you know, uh, uh, Blakemore, I saw your piece on, uh, on we exercise equipment. Jesus Christ, you sure need to use that exercise equipment. Or whatever constructive user comment there might be. He now has, maybe he's in the 24%, but the majority of journalists now think this is a good thing to be able to communicate directly. Sites like YouTube or Google News, which by the way is taken our, eating our lunch because they're taking our stories and people are, are not necessarily going to our sites as much. Uh, uh, even if they're clicking on our stories, they may not click on them in the same way. Uh, the majority of journalists think this is a good thing. And even citizen-based news sites uh, and journalists writing blogs and all kinds of things that would have been considered, I think, frankly, an anathema five, six years ago, the majority of journalists now uh, think that these things are, have a positive impact because they're a way of actually reconnecting journalists and citizens. Ten years ago, maybe 15 years ago, there was a movement called civic journalism in the news business. And that idea was that people had begun to think that news people were too isolated, that they had too much power, and that they spoke in a language that I didn't understand, that they wrote about things in ways that didn't connect to me. Um, and the news was like a cocktail party that where I would meet, I'd show up late and I didn't know anybody. And I'd hear fragments of conversations. I knew, didn't know what the hell anybody was talking about. Well, all of this technology, thank you, technology, um, all of this technology is helping to reconnect journalists and their audience because it's, it's ways to um, speak to them in their terms. If I write a blog, I'm going to write about it in a more informal way than I would my traditional news story. Uh, Google News is giving access to new people. People in Indonesia are now reading my story that I wrote in the Toledo Blade. Uh, all of these things really are less of a threat and more of an opportunity for traditional journalism, except for this problem of decoupling and fragmentation, decoupling of the, of the revenue and fragmenting the audience. Um, that is, and this is getting to, I'm heading toward my segue. Uh, what this is leading to is uh, a concept that, we, that I tried to put together for this year's report which is that journalism, as we used to think of it, was a product. Here's my paper. Here's my story. I hope you like my story. And it's shifting from being that static product, the news is, to being a service. How can I help you today, as a journalist, how can I help you figure out what you need to know? And so I put up my website, and you comment on my story. You may ask me, you may, I've got to put my goddamn email on the story so that you could email me and ask me questions about, well, how would I find out this? And I've got to put the website addresses, not only, you know, to every place that I put in my story, because so, you might want to find out more. And all this other stuff is now a part of, um, uh, 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 of what journalism is supposed to do. Imagine this. Two years ago, if I went to the New York Times 
website. What I would get there was entirely the material from the New York Times, what they called the walled garden. Why? Because the New York Times was such a singular place that it would only offer people the, th the quality of the New York Times. Well, what's happened is that people have discovered, the New York Times and everybody else has discovered that people are going to the internet and using the internet as their destination and are migrating from site to site to site. Two-thirds of the traffic of the New York Times gets to the New York Times through blog links, aggregator sites, and people emailing stories to each other, not people going to the front page of the New York Times. That's why they killed Times <coughs> Select. Um, so it's two-thirds of their traffic comes to the New York Times accidentally. I'm looking for the answer to something, or somebody has sent me something, or and I end up there by accident. So when I get to the New York Times, I not only want to see their stories, but it's only useful to me, or it's more useful to me, if they also tell me where to go next. So today, when you go to the New York Times and you drill down into a story, you may end up at the Washington Post. Because if they're not doing that for me, if they're not helping me navigate, if they're not offering search as part of their journalism, they're like a dead-end street. And it's yes, less useful. So it's another way in which journalism and the journalist is there to help you figure out what you need to know. And you're going to see a lot more of this, this notion, in the next 5, 10, and 15 years. A useful journalist is somebody who can help you, not just somebody who wrote a story that you're supposed to read. That may also be part of where the uh, new economics come from. Um, I, I, I don't need to go through the rest of this. Um, okay, you can actually close this, this down. Um, so where does that leave journalism and, um, uh, and the question of objectivity? Well, uh, as Tony noted, uh, the, uh, the idea of objectivity in journalism is relatively new in the sense that it came in the, in the, uh, around the 1920s, in the latter part of the 20th century. In the 19th century, journalists never talked about objectivity. They probably never even heard the word. They talked about naturalism. And what that idea meant was the more detail and the more kind of facts and stuff I could throw in my story, uh, the more real it would seem. Uh, and um, uh, so, you, you know, if you, if you didn't have, uh, you didn't have uh, any real detail, you'd kind of make it up because it would make the story seem more naturalistic. Uh, and in fact, there was this episode where uh, a there was a famous uh, um, uh, sinking of a boat in, um, uh, or a shipwreck in outside New York Harbor and uh, uh, one of the papers had a cat who was rescued who survived the shipwreck. And all the other papers uh, uh, were mad because this one paper had it. And you know, where's, where was the cat? From then on, for about four or five years, every shipwreck story in New York City had a cat. <laughs> because it was, if you didn't have it, you know, maybe it wasn't a real shipwreck. Well, <laughs> by, by the late, by 1920 or thereabouts, Journalists began to recognize, journalists sort of at the intellectual level, began to re recognize there were real problems to this because uh, we were now at the point where Freud had begun to develop theories about the, the unconscious and the subconscious uh, and um, 
uh, Lipman and another guy had done a, a, a landmark study of, of New York Times coverage of the Russian Revolution and had identified the idea that unconscious bias had distorted uh, our understanding of the Russian Revolution. Uh, and they were beginning to realize, and Lipman was beginning to develop his theories about uh, uh, the public and were beginning to develop concepts of framing and, uh, and uh, how ideas are formed in people's minds. And they said, wait a second. Just giving people facts isn't going to do it. We've got to develop some method by which the audience can decide for itself whether these stories have any validity, are reliable or not. And the idea was, let's borrow this notion of objectivity from science, particularly from German science, uh, and bring it to journalism. And what would that mean? And the idea was uh, that objectivity would be um, uh, uh, that you would have some method of evidence, method of testing evidence, just as you did in science, uh, and that you would create a certain transparency. I would know how you'd gathered this story, and that would allow me to evaluate whether you gathered it in a way that was reliable. Uh, now, back in the 20s, uh, what that meant was pretty crude. One of the concepts that came along with this new concept of objectivity, for instance, was what we could now call datelines. Where were you when you wrote the story? Were you there in that country or not? Uh, so you have you know, Beirut as the dateline and a date. Uh, well, that was, that was a small step towards, uh, towards uh, what we sort of first step toward objectivity. Another concept that was introduced around that time was the byline. Who the hell wrote this story anyway? Um, I'd like to know that. Obviously, we made baby steps. You know, this was not exactly a methodology of transparency or a methodology of what I like to call verification, but it was a step in those directions from a profession that was largely high school educated and uh, 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 was uh, uh, still sort of had vestiges of partisanship and, and other things. Um, but the idea, while never fully realized, was adopt a scientific spirit and a method of verification and a method of transparency. Somewhere fairly early on, objectivity in a sense was lost and hijacked into the concept of neutrality. We'll write it in a way that looks like we're completely neutral and independent and people will believe that we are more objective. But in fact, that was turning the original idea on its head. The original idea was journalists can never be objective, so they should adopt a method that is, because precisely because they can't be. It's the antidote to personal bias. Uh, if you went into newsrooms today and said, what does objectivity mean, as I've done in you know, many dozens and dozens and dozens of cases, you might not necessarily get to that answer first. People would say, well, it means neutrality, it means independent, you know. But as you drill down into, okay, well, what about this? And how do you write that story? And what did you do? And what do you do about your own biases? And blah, blah, blah. you do get to the original meaning of objectivity, but they don't call it that. They tend to call it independence. They call it good reporting. They call it, um, uh, you know, um, uh, a certain kind of writing style. So the concept isn't, isn't lost, but the language is, is all bollocked up. I would argue that 
And, and this is where sort of journalism and science converge. I would argue that if you took the word transparency and replaced it in our thinking of what we talk about as journalistic objectivity, you would come closer to a concept that is both useful to you as an audience and understandable to you as a scientist and provide some sort of guide for where journalism in this new era needs to go. What is this new era again? This is the era in which you as the audience have more control. If I don't like what I see on ABC, I've got not two other options, I've got dozens of other options of where I can go. If I don't like what the AP is doing, actually in the case of the AP, I have no other options. Uh, but in the case of most other news organizations, um, you know, I've got so many other places that I can go that if I don't like what you're doing, I can go somewhere else. I, the user, have more control. I am my own navigator. So how in this era of that it, uh, uh, where the consumer is, is more proactive, how, do you, how can I make my journalism more useful and how can I make it stand out from those, three, those blogs that are doubling every 320 days? or Bill O'Reilly, or Keith Olbermann, or whoever it is else out there who I think is doing something that's not quite the same kind of journalism uh, that I'm doing. Well, one of the key ways is for me, if I think that my method of gathering the news is better, that my sourcing is deeper, that my, uh, the people I've talked to are, are more genuinely expert, um, it means that I need to show you my work. I need to show how I gathered that news more so that you can decide for yourself whether you believe it. The internet is a very helpful tool for journalists who want to move towards a more transparent method of verification. Um, it also means, by the way, when you adopt this concept of objectivity as independence and transparency, it also means that uh, the goal is not um, uh, uh, necessarily balance or fairness. Tony alluded to the fact that we sort of discount these concepts. Why? Why do I discount the concepts of balance and, and fairness? Well, because they're not very helpful as method. Um, fairness is just another way of saying I hope the story is strikes you as being reliable. Fairness is a sort of nice goal, but it doesn't get you anywhere in terms of, well, how do I, how do I get there? And balance, as we all know, uh, you know, can actually lead you to a kind of distortion, especially if you feel like, well, every story, has, I have to tell both sides. Well, what do you do if there's four sides? Uh, what do you do if there's 11 sides, but only two sides uh, have any credence? Or what do you do in the case of a scientific debate where there is a debate, but 90% or 95% or 98% of qualified scientists are all on one side? Uh, how do you accurately reflect that? Well, the way of doing that may be to represent both sides, but you've also got to put them in some context where you say, you say something like 98% of scientists believe what this guy says, not what this other guy says. It also means transparency. Who funds this guy? Who funds that guy? What university is this guy at? What university is that, that guy at? Uh, and tell me more about them. Uh, I, I need to know more about them 
because I'm not taking your word for it anymore. Uh, I'll finish with this and so there's other, more time for questions and other things. I started by alluding to the days when the nightly news was very powerful uh, and the classic gatekeeper role where Walter Cronkite would tell us the news. You guys are all too young to remember this, but it sounds like a Saturday Night Live laugh line now. Cronkite, the most trusted man in America, ended his newscast by saying, and that's the way it is. Today, we'd say, oh yeah, pal? I don't think so. Uh, and so journalism has got to change to match your new skepticism. into the life of, uh, of the of, um, reporter Scientifica and see how we live and, and how we make these decisions that we do. So if I would bring you into, into our world, and you've got a little tiny uh, sneak peek of it. When you heard my cell phone go off, it's uh, my editor saying, why, why aren't you at the office? I said, oh, don't you remember? I told you where I would be. Well, we want you to do an overview by about 2 or 3 p.m. today on the whole food safety things. Okay. So I'll probably be leaving you a tad early. So this is uh, my life. life is, I don't know if it's quite Bill's life. I won't. But it's, it's, it's life of all of ours. Every time you have a tornado or something happening, God, it's the end of the world. You know, it's sort of like living in Washington. We don't uh, we get certain weather every year, but we just don't quite understand why it snows once or twice a year. And, and you know, maybe we should buy snow files or learn to drive in snow. But somehow it strikes us as a shock when it's 95 degrees and humid. Yes, we're built on a swamp. Yes, it gets 95 and humid every year. But still, we don't quite understand that it happens every year and, until it happens and something must be up. So, you know, you get tornadoes. You get this whole point. What is this? Just since Bill tried out to be on the space uh, uh, fly in space, I, I got to fly in zero gravity uh, in the corner somewhere. There, yeah, <laughs> doing the multimedia thing. All right. So first, just to start with weather stories. You know, we why do we do these weather stories? It's pretty obvious. These seem to be the real, you know, the obvious reasons, good visuals for Bill. We talk about it a lot. It's strange. We never have these hot days in the summer. We never have tornadoes in the spring. God, something must be up. The real reason we have these stories is because it affects a boss somewhere. God knows, every, I used to be uh, a reporter down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, summertime, 90 degree weather. 
every week or so, I'd have to do a, a hot weather story. And the editor had been there for 25 years. I said, don't you understand? It gets hot here in the summer. It gets hot here in the spring. It gets hot here in the fall. But no, it doesn't. they don't quite understand. So you have to use this sort of... Uh, Actually, among reporters, most reporters, the weather story is something we try. Uh, most of us try to avoid. It's sort of, uh, oh boy, that's junk. We don't want to do that. It's not real politics. It's not real crime. It's not real anything. I actually enjoyed it because I had to got to have some fun. One time, um, just two quick weather story, weather related uh, coverage stories. One, one time in Fort Lauderdale on a hot ninety something degree day, they wanted me to do a heat story. I went out. To talk, uh, write about how how hard it is to work outside in the heat, went to where they were repaving I-95, found out that the workers take the hot asphalt, take their food, wrap it in tin foil, stick it in the hot asphalt, and cook that way. It was a fun story. Then the roofers called me, and, one, and we had a cook-off, an asphalt cook-off. <laughs> that you know, it was a lot. Of, you know, so you can sometimes get fun. Have a lot. Of, another time, I went down to the beach. Always a good excuse to go to the beach. And uh, it, the sand was hot in the summer, which was, I know is a very strange thing. <laughs> but I got to write the lead. And, and in journalism, we spend about 90% of our time in the first paragraph or two. The rest of it is just thrown in at the last minute. Also, you can get that good first sentence or two. And mine, I, I still remember it. It's been 20 years. These are the times that fry men's souls. <laughs> So, just last month, we had a volcano spewing, a tropical cyclone devastation worsening in uh, Myanmar, an earthquake in China, tornadoes in the Midwest killing wildfires in Florida. My editors didn't remember that, but I did. So before I even went to work that morning, I called my editor on her cell phone and said, I know the bosses are going to say, what's going on? Is the world coming to an end? Every other, everything. And I said, to, I said, remember, this is just chance. These things always happen. Sometimes they happen together. Sometimes they don't happen at all at the same time. And you know what? That time, we didn't write the end of the world story. That was sort of one of these tiny little victories for common sense. They don't happen so often, so you sort of uh, celebrate them. That was random chance by itself. Isn't it? That is. <laughs> it doesn't happen. So... But sometimes, you know, things are up. Global warming is a true one of those true reasons. This is not, of course, global warming here. But this year, been a lot of tornadoes. And I think I've written the story of there's been a lot of tornadoes two or three times. So much so that on my desktop, I keep an Excel a spreadsheet that I've created with um, update, that I update from NWS. Plus, I got a bunch of back data. This is only a tiny bit of it. I love spreadsheets. As a science reporter to me, you can't do anything better than give me data. Like I said, this is a tiny bit of it. It's hard to read because I compressed it to try to fit it in here. I don't even know if I got it all. Got what a little I've got in here. Killer, these are number of tornadoes. Uh, this year, preliminary actual 2007-2006. I actually go back to 97. Um, the website in WS doesn't. Actually, I have on the spreadsheet another sheet that goes back to 1958, but you all know the problem with dealing with tornado statistics beyond a few years back. Here's a number of tornado deaths. So the story is there's 
been another week, another rumbling train, tornadoes that obliterates entire city blocks, smashing homes to the foundation, and killing people even as they cower in their basements. I wish I wrote that. I didn't. It's got my name on it, but this was considered what they call a top story in AP, which means it goes through way too many hands, and someone wrote that part. It was about half based on what I was written, what I wrote. With the year not even half done, 2008 is already the deadliest tornado year in the United States since 1998. Later on, I explained that in the 1920s and 30s, we usually had 200, 300 deaths a year from tornadoes. We don't anymore. Uh, and seems to be on track to break the U.S. record for the number of twisters in a year. Uh, and here's, and this, unfortunately, they edited out my favorite phrases. But like someone who has lost all his worldly possessions to a whirlwind, which should have read to a whirlwind out of the book of Job, meteorologist, which if you remember your book of Job, God came out of a whirlwind and spoke, where were you when I created the heavens and earth? Uh, when I covered Hurricane Andrew, living in South Florida, one of my colleagues wrote the final wrap-up on the Sunday after Andrew with that starting about the book of Job, and it struck me because it truly is an, a very apt phrase, a very apt analogy for what happens, that we don't really know. We can't say it's global warming. We can't say it's anything at this point. You know, in the spring tornado increases, we could say, yes, the La Nina had an effect in certain regions in the U.S., no, nah, that doesn't, you know, now the rest of the year is not, you can't say that. So this was, um, the headline, at least in some places, is tornadoes are on a, uh, on a tear, but why remains a mystery. That was some of them. I actually got a letter last night after I did this PowerPoint presentation yesterday afternoon, a handwritten letter. I don't get those much anymore. I get nasty emails from a little old lady who gave me the answer, sent me an answer from the Shrine Beacon of Nesada. Wisconsin, that it's, you know, this is in the fact that there seems to be a joint U.S.-U.S.S.R. I didn't even know they existed anymore. New World Order type venture of weather warfare. One of mammoth proportions is taking place in Alaska. Um, one of, you know, it talks about the high frequency act, act, um, active auroral research program, which actually AGU put out a press release yesterday about it. Uh, and uh, HARP. Uh, and also about the uh, American Gwen Ground Wave Emergency Network. You see, this is all a conspiracy. Just, I just didn't know that. I missed the story. So now let's take you into my world. Uh, Tony asked me to tell you how, when I, uh, my job is, is, you know, if, if you're your own editor, I, my job is to be the translator. You, to be between you and real people. Not that you're not real people, but you're not. <laughs> To explain these studies that I read, what are interesting to real people, what are not, how to put it in English. God knows I've been trying for 20 years and I haven't learned. Um, so, but the question that Tony wanted me to ask you is how do I tell when someone is telling the truth? I wish I had a really good answer. I do have what I call my uh, truth telling question. And I will, if I call you, I will often ask you this unless I know you or I'm very familiar with the work. The truth-telling question, because as a science reporter, I don't just cover climate change. I cover a variety of issues, including food safety this afternoon. Um, and if it's an issue, an area that I'm not overly familiar with, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm coming in cold. I don't know the really good person from the, you know, marginal person. So I have to figure out that. And my, so the, the best way is to, to read and ask, the ask. There's my uh, truth-telling question. 
I asked the science, the lie detector question, who disagrees with you, who you respect? If you tell me, oh, no, no, everyone agrees with me. This, this is, you know, and those that don't are crackpots. It makes me a little more nervous to talk to you, and it makes me a lot more nervous to talk to you. If you say, oh, well, here's someone who has a slightly different point of view. Here's someone who out and out disagrees with me, but they're a good scientist. We just have, we interpret the data differently. We have different starting points. That really raises your uh, truthiness, to use Stephen Colbert's word, <laughs> in my mind. And then if you even give me his phone number, that's boy, or her phone number, boy, does that make you um, someone I like. Now, in certain fields, um, you know, I was talking to Gabe earlier, hurricanes and climate change, God knows I've written way too much about that. I know everyone. I don't have to ask those questions. I mean, the camps are fairly uh, distinct. Okay, so I also talk to other scientists, talk to experts who I trust. Climate change, just a few of the people I go to and my go-to people. If you read my stories regularly, as my editor unfortunately does, um, you'll need, see a lot of these names over and over again, especially Andrew Weaver. Weaver. Andrew is wonderful because it's easy, easy to get hold of. He gives a good quote, which is important for us, which is summarize everything in one or two sentences, usually cleverly. Um, these are people who, you know, I, I like to think of as, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think are in the, you know, highly thought of, Steve Schneider, you know, Trenberth, Weaver, Barnett. Jerry Mullman, I know, is retired, but I can still call him at home. The only trouble is I can only do that if I have 45 minutes. Uh, you know. I don't call Jerry on deadline. I try to say, I got to go. That's, that usually shortens it from 45 to 35. Uh, since I did tornadoes here, a couple of tornado people. I don't have as many good tornado people. If you know anyone or are someone, please let me know. Uh, climate change, I actually have a 5,000-word source list. I do share with my colleagues, even my competitors. I do. You want it? I'll send it to you. I also read journals a lot. Um, here's journals I mock. At AP, we have, we're very bureaucratized, so we have certain journals or certain reporters cover. I share nature with my colleague Malcolm Ritter. Um, GRO, okay, geophysical research letters I do on my own. Uh, BAMs I do with uh, my colleague Randall, Randy Schmid. Um, nature geoscience I usually do. Uh, Science of PNS are Randy Schmid and Lauren Niergaard. All the medical journals have their own people. And then I get stuff that just is sent to me. Uh, Eureka Alert. I I check daily. You know, it comes in my email. So. Now it's time for you to play science reporter. Here's some titles of papers pending as of yesterday in G GRL. Uh, what happens is uh, AGU used to have two PR people, and they would give you, you know, they would send me the highlights of their papers um, upcoming, but they cut down to one, and, and uh, poor Peter Weiss doesn't have time to do this, so he gave me access to the papers that have been accepted or in press, just the titles. And I can look through them, and then when I want a paper, since um, GRL isn't embargoed, I just email them and he'll send them to me. So, Friday, because uh, NCAR sent out a press release about a certain paper, I said, oh shoot, I have not looked at GRL in about a month. Let's see what's pending. Now, if you've ever looked at the GRL pending in press pages, about 120, 150. 
papers. I'm only giving you, I think, 50 of them. Of these, um, five of them I asked to read. One or two will be a story, maybe, maybe none. Uh, we'll go through this. So here are some of them. Let's see if any of you, you, know, you don't want me to read these out loud. Can you all see those? If you can't, I'll read them out loud. Analysis of seafloor seismograms of the uh, 2003, I can't even pronounce it, earthquake. Importance of soil organic for Arctic climate. Uh, sensitivity with an Arctic RCM. Long-term context for recent drought in Northwest Africa. Dynamic complexity in DS series using uh, non-extensive salus entropy. Boy, I have no idea. When can we expect extremely high surface temperature, Pacific uh, bidecadal, uh, climate variability regulated by tidal mixing around the uh, Kuril Islands, deep low frequency tremors as a proxy for slip monitoring, uh, plate interface. Remember, this isn't just you guys, it's also those uh, seismologists. Um, light absorbing carbon emissions from commercial shipping, increasing winter precip over North Pacific at these time periods, accelerated Arctic land warming and permafrost degradation during rapid sea ice loss, tomographic evidence for hydra um, hydrated oceanic crust of the Pacific slab, and down there, the missing Kyoto gas, you could almost miss it, and then three. Wait, there's more. What drove the dramatic retreat of Arctic sea ice during the summer of 2007? The northward movement of Martian dust is not the answer. Uh, localized in the region of the Hellas Basin. Influence of Typhoon Chanchu in the 2006 South China Sea. Amount of CO2 emissions irreversibly leading to the total melting of Greenland. Association of Antarctic polar stratospheric cloud formation on tropospheric cloud systems. Uh, there's a reason I'm not in radio or TV. I can't pronounce anything. The oceanic origin of interannual and interdecadal variability of the summertime Western Pacific subtropical high fracture propagation uh, propensity in relation to snow slab avalanche release. The Astroland surface em uh, emissivity. What the hell is that? Database <laughs> of California and Nevada. Seismic evidence for the widespread serpentized for four arc mantling of the Mariana convergence margin. Freeze probability of Florida in a regional climate model and climate indices, melting behavior of magnesium iron oxide, so, uh, maybe, I don't know, solid solutions at high pressure, and local wind systems in Rungbuck Valley on the northern slope of Mount Everest. Five of these, I emailed Peter Weiss and said I'd like those to look at. Any, anyone want to guess what five they might be? Come on. That's only two. Come on, what are, what are these are interesting if you were not a meteorologist? What? The retreat of sea ice. Yeah, well, you mean the the, what drove the dramatic, yes, that's one of them. Yeah, the reversible, that's another one. When can we expect extremely high surface temperature? Damn, when can we expect extremely high surface God, I thought it was today. Um, interesting paper. I don't understand it. I'm still waiting to talk to the authors. Uh, any of you want to translate it for me? What drove the dramatic re uh, retreat of Arctic sea ice summer so 2004? Amount of CO2 emissions irreversibly leading to the total melting of Greenland. Accelerated Arctic land warming and permafrost de degradation during rapid sea ice loss. And freeze probability of Florida in a regional climate model and climate indices. Now, NCAR gave me... Uh, tipped me off on the fourth, which is why I went to there. And I thought, well, that's a good story. I got the paper, read it. Mm. 
call my editor and she goes, ah, boy, I don't know. Don't we know this already? And I'm going, no, 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 really. It's going to be happening much faster according to the paper. And she says, well, write me a sentence or two explaining it. And this is before I talked to David Lawrence, the lead author. So I had to write her a sentence or two. And she said, oh, okay. And then I talked to David Lawrence, who really downplayed it. And so far, it may not even be a story. It was embargoed to 11 a.m. today. It's not going out today. Uh, so definitely not today now. So that's a borderline. It's the one I went in here. Um, because if you talk, uh, if you talk to Lawrence, he's really downplaying how much permafrost it would be. He does as we have no idea. Um, this is all more speculative in the foreground. I th still think it's a story, but especially now when I have to go back and do tomatoes, this has got to go. <laughs> the freeze probability of Florida to me is fascinating because I used to live in Florida. I passed that on to our Florida. Um, Bureau chief because it's really only interesting to Florida, so they may look at it or they may not. Like I said, the extremely high, sur uh, when can we expect extremely high surface temperature? I'm fascinated with that. Bill better not be listening. Uh, what drove the dramatic retreat of Arctic sea ice during the summer of 2007? I read that. I said, that's exactly what they said in press conferences and all these things. And I was talking to Mark Cerise last uh, night. He said, yeah, it's just writing it up. Um, the amount of CO2 emissions irreversibly leading to total melt of Greenland. It's interesting, but not a story because it was just way out there in the future. Uh, and it's also very speculative and, and it's hard to translate, make people understand why. So there's the, t the two. There's the contact information. Um, just a few more things to talk about in terms of objectivity, since you know, we raised that issue. Um, in, in those of us who cover climate regularly, this has been a long time issue that has is actually been addressed and solved for about five years, five or 10 years, I'd say, is it's a question of false balance. We usually always have to have a Pat Michaels or a Fred Singer, God, um, or those types, Richard Lindzen um, in there, John Christie, and we'd have them in their story. But there's now a sense, and, and what I will often write is, if I have them in, they'll say, but the vast, overwhelming vast majority of climate scientists agreed this way. And they're, and they're in the minority and have very little uh, peer-reviewed science papers to, to back them. Are you saying you're, you're, you're asked to put them in still? No, I'm not. No. They, not anymore. They aren't asking you to put them in. No, not anymore. Not for years. Not about five years. Actually, the last time, and this was when I was at Knight Ritter, I did a uh, piece on Ala uh, melting. I was up in Alaska and did a, uh, Alaska's melting story. And I had, a, I think, Pat Michaels in it. And my editor said, why do we need him in? And uh, he wasn't in there anymore. And then we got calls from papers going, why isn't uh, someone else? Because the the reality is my job is to what they call the phrase often here, in, at least in our newsroom and my previous newsroom, is write with authority, as if you're the voice of God. Um, and you know, on an issue that I'm comfortable with, it's easy. On an issue I'm, I'm new to, it's not. Uh, and so often when I, I, I have two, two big types of stories, I, the stories I could spend some time on, weeks, even a month or two, I can do that. And those I have to do within a day, it's kind of hard. Um, Story, uh, for example, 
this past winter, I did a story uh, taking all the data, the sea ice data, some new, I broke the new Grace data on uh, Greenland, uh, had a great Mark Suri's quote in there, you know, the Arctic is screaming. That was the headline, that was the quote in the second or third graph. It's made the story. For that, I believe, what I often do in these stories is after I do all my work, just for my own fun, I write the name of every person I talk to at the top of my notes to see how many I talk to, and then I try to get in the story that the Associated Press talked to 30-some scientists on this, and then my editors take that out. I think that's stupid. I think it's important to show the work that I do. I'm very big in transparency. Unfortunately, it's not as easy to do where I'm at. Um, I like to show the work. I'm proud of the work I do. So I, wanna, I want people to see how I do this. Um, so I will do, you know, that's how I, have, I try to get to the truth of things by talking to as many people as possible. Um, I always ask people, who else should I be talking to? Uh, I'll tell them who I've talked to, and when they find, when I start to hear two or three times, well, you've got to, just about it, that's when I feel more comfortable. My editor usually halfway through this point is saying, stop reporting, start writing, and I ignore her. And unfortunately, this is tape, but she won't see it. <laughs> I, I uh, got attacked on the Senate floor about two years ago, early into my AP career, when uh, Inconvenient Truth came out. And about a month or two later, I was asked to do a story about scientists' take on inconvenient truth. The way I figured the best way to do this was to talk to as many scientists, either by email or by phone, who have seen it. Only those who have seen it or read the book. That worked for me, too. Uh, unfortunately, it was only a month or two afterwards, and inconvenient truth wasn't at, as widely distributed as it is now. Uh, so I made a list of 100 I think 103, 104 scientists that I contacted uh, with six questions. You know, did you see it or read it? Uh, what did you think of it in general? Were there scientific inaccuracies? If so, what? Were, did he capture the issue well? And if so, how? That type of thing. And my feeling is if you said, no, I haven't seen it or read it, and then answered all the rest of it, which way too many of you did. Don't, you, all too many. Oh, because, you know, you read all about it. You knew it. In the end, by the time my story ran, uh, 19 scientists who I had contacted had seen it or read it. I also had asked if they were consulted on it. All, of the 19, all of them said it was generally, predominantly, overwhelmingly accurate. There were niggling issues, as you very well know if you've seen it. Um, and I wrote that. Boy, did I get attacked. And actually, the funny thing is afterwards, I kept getting responses two, three months later after the story for someone, you know, finally saw it and emails me back. And still, even, you know, I think I'm up to maybe 30 and no one said, you know, it overwhelmingly missed. I was attacked um, on the floor of the Senate by Senator Jim Inhofe. I'm regularly attacked by his uh, PR person, Mark Morano. This is Bill. Uh, Mark is also the guy behind the Swift Boats Veterans Campaign. So in that, one of the things I would wanted to do at the time, but we didn't because AP is not sort of set up for that type of... Actually, AP, Associated Press does not even have its own real website. We have a website, 
but unlike a newspaper, the Washington Post and the New York Times, we host others' websites. Because what I really wanted to do was put my spreadsheet of everyone's answers, who I contacted. I wanted to put that online, but we don't have that venue. I mean, it's, it's, that's unfortunate that way. Um, there's a lot of other good things about being in the Associated Press, such as we're .org, not .com. We're technically a nonprofit, although sometimes the bosses don't understand that. Uh, I get contacted by my colleagues in the shrinking, shrinking, shrinking field of journalism all too often, hey, is there something there? Uh, is there a job available? It's, you know, when I came about two and a half years ago, it's a place that at least we will have some kind of, uh, well, some kind of future, and uh, and we, and luckily we get to open a lot of doors. So uh, when we have questions, thank you. Thanks for coming. <clears throat> um, Seth, how long are you going to be with us? Well, if I could actually, would you mind terribly if I could take questions now and leave? Just okay. Kind of a let's fancy let's boss. let's do that. Do you mind that? Let's do that. And. You have my email here, right? And yep. uh, it's on the um, on the back of your slide. On the back of my slide. Okay. So if you don't mind, uh, anyone can email me questions. I will usually answer. Okay. I get emails regularly from global warming deniers. I actually have a stock answer. So uh, let let me. Uh, I don't mean to preempt everybody in the audience, but let me ask you a question to start off with. Uh, maybe it's two questions combined into one. Um, you're a science reporter. Um, that's a that's a really focused niche to be in. Given the cuts that Tom was talking about and the exodus from newsrooms across the country, your kind of specialty I regard as rare. In other words, you're one of a handful of science reporters around the country these days. Which means to me that uh, a lot of the science coverage, while you may cover a lot of science, you don't do a lot of the writing in aggregate. In other words, there's a world of journalists out there covering various aspects of science. So as you look more broadly, um, how do you see objectivity? In other words, um, you know, we've heard about your standards, mm -hmm. but, you know, you've got a community out there that's much larger than the small percentage of science writers and reporters that you represent. What's your take on objectivity? Is the lesson learned in broadly in the journalism community? Is there a methodology here that we can all sort of point to and say, hey, you know, we're really moving on? Uh, yeah. you know. um, unfortunately, I don't think you're connected to the web, otherwise i show you. In general, I think uh, the community of science journalism isn't as under attack, uh, uh, falling apart as the rest of journalism, but that's maybe my Pollyanna view. Um, we have, by the time you get to be a science journalist, many of us have gone through this so often. Uh, I'm quite proud of the standards of my colleagues. I think we do a, uh, an excellent job. There, just as peer review is important in science, um, we're not connected to the web. Let me give you a uh, website. There's a, it, this builds itself as peer review within science journalism. The Knight Science Journalism Program at MIT has a daily tracker that tracks science reporting around the country, around the world actually, 
and uh, links to these stories with some criticism and not some and some compliments. I've been on both ends of those. It's done by Charlie Pettit, who's a, a long time former longtime science writer at San Francisco and Chronicle, U.S. News and World Report, and Boyce Rensberger, who's at MIT but used to be at the Washington Post. Um, it's KSG, KSJ, Night Science Journalism, Tracker, KSJ Tracker, no word, .mit.edu. It's a good site for that. Uh, the Columbia Journalism Review also has started um, a tracking system like that called uh, um, the Observatory, if you go to cjr.org. So we're, you know, we, we try to work on this and uh, at the Society of Environmental Journalism, where I'm a, a, me a longtime member, you'll see this, you know, there, there are outliers, just like in every profession. But I think, uh, in general, we do a good job. Um, and we're a fraction, you know, just you have uh, fewer, the newspapers are having fewer science reporters. But there are more of us also out in things like uh, science news and nature and things like that. We're, we're out there. And... and uh, the media that's remaining understands how important our uh, our expertise is, even if it's uh, expertise that we uh, got on the job as opposed to through college. Yeah, uh, Just to follow up then, do you get any sense that as the old traditional media have less, quote, science reporters, that more of the audience is in any way beginning to discover that they too can go and read science journals for themselves? Is there any? I don't know. I don't. I don't know. Maybe there's some other evidence. Any hunches? Well, I, I, they can go. Well, part of no, it. No, but it means that they're actually doing it. That they're actually doing it. I think they do it after we tell them what's out there. Yeah, remember we're we're act as a giant funnel. Uh, for example, with nature, I get nature five days before it comes out. You know, on an embargoed basis, so the general public doesn't know what's going to be out on Wednesday at one p.m. Eastern. I know as, as of uh, th actually Thursday, so it's six days. Uh, I have the abstracts and I get the uh, papers on Friday. And so, and, and I look through them generally, uh, at least the abstracts. And uh, yeah, they can go to them afterwards, but what I'm is sort of the, in a way, the filter on what's interesting and what's not. You look at the average nature paper list. I mean, we end up writing maybe one story every two or three weeks. There are some dread, you know, you just saw GRL. Nature is just about the same way. You know, of those, really only two were remotely interesting. Um, if someone wants to do that and go through it and say, here's what I find interesting, they can do that, and I think that's great. But what I provide is sort of narrowing of, of hey, I've gone through all these. Here's the ones that are kind of interesting. Yeah, I, I would I would say two things. Um, first, I, I think that's an increasing role for journalists to tell people where they can get stuff and, and what's out there that's valuable. Because if you're if you're moving more rapidly as a journalist, you have less time to sort of spend three weeks doing original research and things like that. Um, and you've got more groups out there sort of doing uh, quasi journalistic things. Helping people navigate to them is, I think, a growing part of what we do. It's not, it's not all of what we do, it's not instead of what we do, but it's a way of doing things quickly that can be helpful. The other thing I want to do, just mention before I forget, because it's come up a couple of times, there is, in a sense, a, a peer review process in journalism. And it's not so much that your editor peer reviews. Uh, and in science, it doesn't happen 
uh, in quite the same way, which is why you have to have these websites. But in a, in a very real sense, the truth is not to be found in a story, per se, as it is in a series of stories over time. There's a sorting out process. And so if somebody writes a story about uh, you know, uh, an event that happened in politics, uh, it's not that first story that, that tells you, you know, what's, what the truth is. It's after two or three weeks, and it's sort of bandied about, and it's sorted out, and that's the peer review process. It's ugly, it's in public, it's, uh, there's m mismanagement, and that puts a little more responsibility on the consumer to follow the story as it plays out, whether it's Bittergate or uh, Hillary Clinton getting sniper sh shot at in Bosnia or whatever. But these stories that have a little bit of a lifespan, that there is the rough equivalent of a peer review process. But and, and that and that's you know as very similar to sort of what happens after scientific. You get a scientific paper; it's just compressed in time. Um, you know, someone will, Gabe will come out with a paper on. Uh, uh, I don't mean to pick on, but on warming and uh, and hurricanes, and then you'll get the responses, and things keep going. You know, it's been five, six years on that topic, and you know, you're starting to see a little sorting out coming out. Questions? Anybody have any questions of Seth before he leaves? Yeah, can I ask you to get to a microphone? Um, up here. The one is up front, so you want to come up here. Uh, that way, they will capture it on uh, on tape. Since I picked on you. Yeah, since you picked on me. Um, no, uh, just uh, you mentioned the the, the, the sort of the object uh, the objectivity being interpreted as neutrality and picking the the camps. And what I see is that perhaps the the real meat of the the scientific inquiry isn't going on in the camps; it's going on in this sort of this murky middle. Mm -hmm. Where when I talk to, to to reporters, they say I can't even figure out which camp you're in, and it's because most of us aren't in a camp. And so maybe, and I don't know how you how how this is done, uh, because everybody likes to have you know the good and the bad and the ugly. Uh, but how do you report, or is there a strategy to report this this middle that is really kind of the, the differences are subtle. Uh, you know, or is it just going to be always the extremes that are going to be reported on? Uh, one, my, my colleague Andy Revkin at the top, New York Times has done an awful lot on this. Uh, he, he, although sometimes when you try to look for the murky middle, you don't quite find it where it is because he was talking about Roger Pilkey Jr. as the murky middle, which I don't really think many of you would agree that Roger Pilkey Jr. is the murky middle. Um, but in terms of, let's take your paper with Tom Knudsen's on the recent one on climate change and uh, and hurricanes. To me, the reason I wrote that is because it, it seemed like a development of the murky mill. And because to me, and just from outside, and I could be wrong, and, and, and just to give you perspective, before I wrote about climate change, I wrote about hurricanes. So I've known Bill Gray for about 20 years. And Bill Gray will say, you know, said, credited me, one of my stories with helping, you know, get back a grant that he had lost. I have his home phone number, his cell phone number, and all that stuff. Although he keeps yelling at me because whenever I write about climate change. And I've you know, written about climate change for a long time, so I understand the sort of the Chris Lansley perspective and the Kerry Emanuel, uh, Kevin Trenberth, Kurt Curry perspective. Um, 
And, and in that way, you actually do see a more, and than in other parts of science, a more gelling. Because if you look through the papers, they're really, and talk to them, there has been a little more acrimony. As in, and you've seen them even in some of the comments people like Chris has made, Chris and Kevin have made, um, and Carrie. And to me, that's, that paper that you co-authored with Tom was fascinating because here was one of the one of the criticisms of the Chris Lancy sort of camp, and I know it's unfair to call them camp, was that these are people who are sort of coming from the edges near skeptic climate change skeptics. And that's not where Tom is. And to me that gave a lot of credibility. He was fine he was pushing toward the middle, as was Kerry Emanuel in his earlier paper. And I looked at this as this was a sort of forming middle. Um, but I have some issues with your paper. I mean, one of the ones was when, when Tom talks about not, models not going over 50 um, meters a second. That's, you know, I think it was 50. That, you know, and that was one of the issues others raised. But the, the development of, a, of a, a middle consensus, I'm, God knows I'm sick of that story. I want there to be one. And I want it to be one that ever, you know, then I could just, you know, follow, and that's why I was interested because it seems a start, a slight formation of it. It's still early. How about uh, right here and then over there? Can you come up to the microphone? Anybody in addition to um, Keith? That's all. Okay. Because I want to get uh, Ed in, and I want to get your questions in, and then open it up more broadly and get Bill in as well. Um, this is for everyone, but I wanted to ask it while everyone's here. Um, we've heard from a number of senior scientists who have looked back throughout their careers and they've said, what graduate students in atmospheric sciences really need is training in media. So if you could design that for an atmospheric, a group of atmospheric science PhD students, what would it look like, what do we need, and how long do we need to build the skills that we need? So, I think it would, in a way would be just the... You know, much like fellowships, like I, when I get some, it is a one week spending intensive time with scientists and, and, and just talking in um, non confrontational, non, you know, not even off the record conversations, you know, going to and looking through the research where you can go in depth, um, ha uh, hands on. I don't know if m many media organizations would do this, I would tend to doubt it, but I think it would be extremely helpful if some of the graduate students were able to spend a week tagging along with a, a reporter to see what we go through. Just like I find it very helpful when I do that with you. I think it would be useful the other way around. I doubt that it will happen because um, my bosses everywhere I've been are fairly short-sighted about that. Um, they're fairly short-sighted about me going to these things. Forget about us hosting someone else. So, absent that, this to me is the best you, you know situation. Or sit down when you meet. If I'm at one of your conferences, sit down with me or sit down with Bill. And and just chat. You know, come off the record. Just ask. We'll talk. We're, you know, we don't bite. Do you, Tom, do you have a comment on that yeah, question? I, I definitely do. Um, I, I'd say a couple of things. First of all, um, 
you can't if you can't tag along with a reporter, which is probably not going to be practical. Yeah. I think there is a way to create a curriculum in which the reporter would come and essentially give you, as you were starting to do here, assignments so that you could see how, if you were a journalist, would you try and translate this for a lay audience. And I, I think you could easily develop uh, a, a fairly intensive uh, uh, curriculum that went on for a week or so uh, along those lines. But um, uh, the two other things I would say uh, are, are this. Conventional media training that you might get if you're in a corporate setting, I think is uh, damaging and uh, wrong-headed. And that would be putting you on camera, uh, teaching you sort of talking points, how to do message control, the sort of political training that you would get if you were uh, on Capitol Hill. And uh, which my uh, 10-year-old daughter, now 13-year-old daughter, 13-year-old daughter would say, wow, that guy's not really talking like a regular person. Um, I mean, you, you know, people are media savvy. Instead of uh, uh, suggesting that there is no uncertainty in your work uh, and that you, you, know, you, you, you bleed out all of the uh, uh, nuance, and what you can do is there's a way to learn to talk about uncertainty in simple and clear ways. And, and for me, the key would be if, you're, if you teach, you'll know that as you prepare your lectures, you're, you're essentially road testing the language uh, and, and figuring out what are the phrases and terms that, that illuminate an idea, that make it clear, where you can see people respond, and they, be, they begin to. Uh, and, and you'll notice in the way that all of us up here are going to talk, it's very uh, uh, you know, colloquial. Uh, and um, in the concepts, which to me are kind of complicated, that I write about in my books, those are often worked out in sessions like this where you see what, wh when do people connect to them, when do they not, and that's what you want to do with your science. You want to think hard about the language, about what communicates the idea, not okay, well, I can't, there can't be any uncertainty, I'm just going to say this. And you also have to take the complex terms that you use in the, that create exclusivity in a scientific community and eliminate that. Fight against that when you're trying to talk to a uh, broad community. What is good writing depends almost entirely on the audience you're writing for. If Bill Blakemore were doing a piece for uh, uh, Nightly News, he does it differently than if you were doing a documentary in long form that was for a different audience. And that's what you need to figure out as scientists. You can't talk one way. You have to talk in a way that communicates to the audience you're talking to. I'm sure that you do graduate courses differently than you do undergraduate courses. Um, and you know that's the sort of tailoring that I think uh, you need to learn. Go ahead. Yeah, I just... Uh, I'd echo the comment that formal media training, is, as I'm aware of it, is, is helpful here. Um, the first thing you can do is ask us who are journalists to be good journalists. And you should find a way to do that. Because in fact, as the great Alistair Cook said, one of the major jobs of the journalist is to be the translator, the connector between the experts and the public, or the interpreter between the experts and the public. Now. Some of the greatest scientists talk very well. 
I've interviewed Edward Wilson about this, uh, and, and I said, it seems to me that you do a lot of your greatest thinking when you're writing books in English, two of which have won Pulitzer Prize. And he said, that's true. I do my best science when I'm writing those books to try to explain it to the world. Uh, the great Jim Hansen in 1988 stood in front of Congress, and he'd given a little bit of common sense thought, doing what good journalists do, which was thinking, how would I explain this you know, to your Aunt Bessie, so to speak? Um, uh, all scientists aren't Aspergery geeks. <laughs> I know that because the scientists are the great heroes of the global warming story. You're normal people. In fact, you're the heroes of this story. This story, in fact, I find, as I'll talk about when I present my ideas, science, science stories are no different from finance stories and they're no different from war stories in terms of their basic challenge to the journalist. All of these realms are complicated for the people who are in them, but the basic ideas that need to get across to the public um, are pretty simple when you have a journalist who makes sure that the simple ideas come across once you've done the hard work of figuring out what they are. So basically, um, give a little thought to realizing you're not talking to people who don't talk jargon every day, but in any case, even if you do, it should be our job to say, wait a minute, that's jargon. Repeat that without using that big, fancy, complicated word. So the single piece of advice I have is to ask us, and you can literally do this. You could look at us and say, excuse me, I'm a scientist, and I just think about this, this all the time in jargon that I sometimes have a hard time, so I'm asking you as a journalist to do a good job of translating it back into language that the public will understand. It's very common sense. And, and just to follow up on that, and two things. One, um, think analogies. Analogies really are very useful. Gabe and I were talking, not to pick on you again, on the way up here, um, on baseball as an analogy, on risk and climate change. It was a wonderful analogy. I'll steal it sometime after talking to him further. Um, the other thing is, at least uh, I don't know if, if, if Bill's found this, and this is, our, you know, our job is to simplify everything to, we used to be told, the eighth grade level and then the second grade level of, of learning. Really, we're supposed to write <laughs> people with a second grade education, which is not much of one. And uh, so one of the things that's very strange is I found the more I know of a subject, the poorer I am as a writer. Because, for example, when it comes to hurricanes, you know, you, you could talk about all sorts of models. And I will know these instinctively, and I will lapse into the same jargon as you're jar talking, and then suddenly it will lapse into my story. And it's when a story that I'm coming in completely fresh, and when I call a scientist who I don't know, and I'm at their mercy and then going through all my normal techniques, and I'm going, okay, I don't, forgive me, I don't understand this. Can we talk, you know, is it this? And what I will often do, and this is something you should encourage, is do you understand this? And what, I mean, ask me to spit it back to you, not the story. I'm not talking about reading the story, but how do you understand this? Especially if it's something I don't, I will spit it back. Do you mean this? And they'll say, almost. And then we'll tweak it a little more. That's sort of the thing. It, 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 you want that give and take of trying to take something from this level to that level. Yeah, just to pick this up, I've just realized I forgot to tell you what I was going to tell you about Jim Hansen. In 1988, Jim Hansen, uh, who is a great scientist, is also a great communicator. He also realized, as many of the scientists in climate have, that because you're a scientist, it doesn't mean you're not supposed to let the public know what you're concerned about. In 1988, he, he stood in front of Congress to say uh, anthropogenic global warming has started. 
It's underway now. It's changing our climate now. But he'd given a little thought, and so he brought along a big dice, a die, singular, right? And he'd painted four sides of it red rather than just one, of course, and to, to give the congressman in front of him a general sense. He'd given a little thought to analogy. He said, to give you an idea of what's going to happen, um, heat spikes are going to happen um, a bit more frequently. Think of it this way, and he held up the dice. He still has this dice, he told me, sitting above his desk. There's no reason, there's no, there's no rule book somewhere that says scientists aren't supposed to think like this. In fact, and this is a theme that I think will come up more and more, um, Connecting the stovepipes is a major theme, structural theme of the global warming climate crisis right now. And, and it certainly means breaking down and connecting the stovepipes of scientists and the public over here. Uh, the teamwork is always a matter of enormous amount of overlap, and we just got to discover the natural overlap. It's common sense we're after. And oh, and the other thing I wanted to mention, I usually use fourth grade. All of, the, all of the science that the public needs to know um, to really understand at a deep level what's going on with global warming can be explained very simply to a fourth grader. It's not that complicated to explain the basics of it. Of course, you guys who are doing the hard work of figuring out the details, as in the world of finance or in military stories or in any other kind of stories, it's very hard for you. But for us, if, if a fourth grader can't do it, uh, can't understand it, we haven't done our job. I would add one other thing to that. Uh, and that is, when you're talking to a reporter, what you should have in your mind is not what's my boss going to think or what are my peers going to think. It should be, have I made this clear to this guy I'm talking to? He's the kind of the representative of the average person. Have I communicated uh, well to him? Uh, you, you, when you talked about uh, saying, I don't get this, when you come to a news story, there's a concept in reporting some people use uh, that you, you might call critical ignorance, where you, you think of your ignorance as an advantage because it gives you the freedom to say, I don't get this. What do you mean? Prove this to me, which can be a very, very powerful reporting technique because people, you can expose when people are spinning you. Uh, you should have in your mind that uh, you want to make sure that you've uh, explained this to the critically ignorant reporter. He may not be somebody who's a very good reporter, too. And, and, that's, and so you've got to sort of make sure you've dealt with that. If the guy's incurious, make sure you've tried to somehow engage what little curiosity he or she may have. And, and remember, this is sort of two, um, not two, but you can almost say two or three types of reporters. There are the science reporters like myself, like Bill, who, who at least if we don't know this particular subject, we know the whole, um, the general field. We may not be trained in it, and I certainly am not. Um, but I learned how to ask questions. I've learned the tools. And then there are the general assignment reporters who are coming out of it completely out of nowhere without the, you know, the ability to ask the right questions and they're the ones who are all too easily spun, unfortunately, especially on things like climate change. The politics reporters are looking for the political angle if they're talking to you as opposed to, you know, the science. So that's something you want to know. I mean, you want to know sort of where the reporter is coming from. Also, one last thing. Uh, tell me about the uncertainty. I can handle uncertainty. My editor can't. But <laughs> conveying uncertainty to the readers, that's my problem. You convey it to me. 
then put the burden on me. I can handle it usually. Right. Yeah, and just to, and we're all in the same international guild, this 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 professional journalism guild. Disasters and things. Um, and I find this story really no different from all the other ones in some basic ways. And one of the basic principles that I found in wars, in covering popes, in covering all those other things, and in covering this story, is that the really serious professionals in the story and the really serious professionals among the journalists find each other. And those that aren't really good don't. And uh, besides, we only have, as journalists, one thing to offer you, and that's our credibility. As soon as we lose that, we're done. And there's no guarantees. It's, a, a, it's an intangible thing, but it's very real. A journalist, a professional journalist, is somebody who knows when the deadline comes how not to report what he does not know. And it's a surprisingly rare skill. S great scientists have it. Great journalists have it. You know, good scientists, good journalists have this skill. That's what we are. We can talk later about the Karl Popper hypothetical deductive basis of the necessity of this double negative as being more important even than verifiability a little later. But the basic idea that Seth is talking about here is don't talk to us if you don't trust us. And you should really, I would, I would recommend that you really give some thought to figuring out whether the journalist you're about to talk to is trustworthy. Because as we all know too well that plenty are sent out by bosses who have to who have to get 24 hours of news on every day, who have to fill the time gap, who, who want to do the lazy thing and do a balanced story because at least they don't get bugged then and it's horribly immoral for them to do it, but they do it. Um, let me take a moment here and say, um, we've reached a point in this panel discussion this morning and I wanted to get Bill's comments in. No, 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 don't apologize. We've started a really rich discussion and I don't want to really sort of break it off. I'm just wondering if in the midst of this discussion, we can get your pieces in in an informal way. In other words, during the Q&A somehow. Does that make any sense? Or do you want to get up here at the podium and just carve out a chunk of time? Well. Yeah, okay, okay. Right, and I don't mean for them not to have their piece. I mean to make it less formal. Um, but anyway, following up on some of the things that were said here, um, a couple of things strike me as really things that I've seen as difficulties. Um, one being the, um, you know, the question that Emily asked is how could you help design some kind of communications training for scientists and so on? Um, to me, what I heard was a lot of important messages about how to have the conversation between scientists and media people. But what about the sociological and linguistic aspects of what we're talking about here? In other words, the fact that facts may not, you know, be the uh, be the sort of uh, uh, as as pointed out by uh, Lipman in 1920, or as he feared in 1920, and as people have come to know, um, it's not necessarily the way, by in and of itself, the way people take on information. In other words, if your purpose is to inform or it's to motivate to do something, to take sensible action, make sensible decisions, 
Um, how do you add those other elements into a training, a communication training, both for scientists and journalists? I mean, where do you, is it part of the, the you know, the training in general, or how do you, how do you do it? How do you backfill? And secondly, let me ask this other question, completely divorced from that. In most business settings that I can see, there's a great deal of pressure to get the pieces out quickly. And yet, we're trying to sort of, your message, Bill, is to hold us to, to professional journalistic standards. Well, the kinds of time constraints and other constraints that the professional settings put on people, does it somehow unravel the professionalism at all? Yeah. It is? Okay. No. The power of the genie is in his confinement. It's in our discipline. Journalists are people who become addicted to deadlines. Novelists aren't. And we, um, in the word journalism, it's jour means day. It sort of implies there's going to be a deadline. As I said, a journalist is someone who knows how not to report what he does not know when the deadline comes. He's not an academic. He's not somebody who's going to, he's also going to be somebody who tries to keep you engaged immediately. But all of these pressures on us in no way are any excuse for not being a good journalist, period. You're either good at it or want to try to be good at it or, um, or not. It's, it, you, I mean... Seth, we all, I mean, we live with, we live with this burden because we, we know that it's our job to keep trying to keep shapely news getting out there in increments that are refutable, that stand up there. I mean, I mean I'm anticipating what I'm going to say here, but when, when Karl Popper it, it launched modern philosophy of science and pointed out that... Uh, that all there really are is high-quality hypotheses and low-quality hypotheses. The high-risk hypotheses are the ones that are refutable, that make predictions you would not otherwise have expected, but which you know how you could refute. I think, in a rough way, the parallel in journalism is the report. When Seth puts something in print, there it is, and his credibility is on the line. When I put a TV report on the air, there it is. It's like a, it's a, you know, it's a, it, if it's any good, it's it's put there in a form that you can refute. That's what we do. Okay, uh, well, to, to to go to the question of how would you, what would be covered in a in, in a kind of curriculum to help scientists communicate more effectively? And I've done, I've written a lot of curriculum for mid-career professionals, generally journalists, but not not only. Um, you know, I think you'd sit down over a period of time and figure out what are the components that, you're, that you want to cover. Um, but to go to the point that Bill and I were alluding to before, conventional media training basically trains people how to deal with a hostile and unprofessional media and how to reduce things down into simple terms so they can be communicated in sound bites. And what you need is something much more involved and complicated than that one of the things that you need to learn is how to communicate d directly to a public your ideas in a way that they would understand. That would be one element of this training. Another would be how to deal with reporters, good reporters and bad reporters. What are the, what are the signs of when a reporter is incompetent and might be dangerous uh, or take things out of context or, or wants to put words in your mouth? What are the, how do you deal with that? That's another component, compl completely separate component. 
A third one would be how to develop long-term relationship with somebody like Seth or Bill so that you can, uh, and, and often the best reporting and the best science communication comes from that relationship. You learn from each other. You, you'll learn what makes a story. Uh, you'll develop, I mean, the best research in science, is, like the best journalism, is comes out of, we did this thing and that really caused me to want to go in this other direction and do this other research and that's what I'm, that's the best reporting too. It's that, gee, I worked on this story, but in the midst of doing that story, another question came to me. And the, when you're really on a roll as a journalist, each story sort of leads to the next one. Uh, and the best communication with journalists will, and so how to have a long-term relationship with a journalist would be, there would be some media training in the, in the sense of how do you talk on TV, but it, it, this could be a pretty rich thing that you could develop. It wouldn't be that complicated. It's just not the kind of thing that in this, it, the typical media training is generally crisis training. Your university is under siege, your research is under siege. How do you uh, stop the bad man from hurting you? Uh, oh, by the way, one thing I forgot to mention, and I don't know if I've quite got the name down, but I believe there is a seminar for scientists called, I believe it's a Leopold Loeb, uh, and I'll maybe run out of Stanford. Aldo Leopold. Aldo Leopold, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> yes, I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. It's, you know, obviously it's a mental glitch there. They have a set, you know, a, a very intensive course on on dealing with the media, and as Tom said, you know, one of one of my best sources for ideas, one of my comfort levels is uh, Terry Root, for example, at Stanford. And I communicate by email or by phone at least once a month. Just she's telling me what, what she's working on, what she knows others are working on. Boy, this would be an interesting idea. Or I'll say, you know, I was thinking about this. Do you know much on this? And she'll say, you know, that's kind of interesting. Let's, you know, let me think about it for a while and get back to you. And then, you know, she'll get back to me with this, you know, a, a list of papers and a list of sources. Um, and I do that with others too. Uh, you, you, you want to create that with reporters you trust, and it, it really works well. And and one quick negative story. Um, I've had the occasion every now and then to be interviewing a scientist who I can tell has been briefed by that institution's media person beforehand, and I think I always think, oh no, I'm going to have to work twice as long. I'm going to yeah, this. It's, it's, I mean, we're journalists, and so what we love to find is authentic people. And if we we don't care about your media savvy, I I, I don't want it. Media, media is not what journalism is about. I mean, media literally, of course, it's a physical it's a physical things. Media are if you're going to get very literal about it. I'm thinking of a case that I had on the other. I won't name the institution, but it was a very important atmospheric climatological institution somewhere on the west to the west of the Mississippi. Recently, where I sat down with somebody who'd done a lot of work, and they'd been briefed by the institution's media representative just beforehand, you know, to get various kinds of skills in place and all of this, and it was impossible to get to get going. Whereas if this person had just started out, I sat there for five minutes of jargon, and I would have said, "Oh, amazing! What's that mean? What's that mean?" And not, we know how to do this. You know, we'd like to hear a little jargon at first. It sort of helps us know that you're really scientists, and we'll take care of conveying your authentic. Center nature, which is what you know, we're just trying to find out what's going on. Um, with those words, I want to get Ed in here and I want to get Bill here in here in a formal way. 
And Keith and Hital, I just want to defer your questions until uh, we've had a chance to hear from Ed. Write them down, keep them, keep them uh, focused. Ed? Good morning. My name is Ed Maybach. I'm not a member of their guild. I'm actually a member of your guild, more or less. Um, and actually, I'm going to start my presentation by commenting on what they just said, because I, I disagree a little bit. Um, first, a question to you. What is the number one phobia in America? That's a reasonable guess, but it's not right. Public speaking. Public speaking. Public speaking. Now, what would you guess is the number one phobia among scientists anywhere in the world? It's, it's, interacting, with, it's interacting with journalists. That's the number one phobia. Sure. Um, so I, I actually am a big proponent of media training. I think it's great if for no other reason, not so that you learn how to mindlessly parrot talking points that somebody else has prepared for you, but so that you learn to become comfortable in the process of interacting with the media. Because when you are comfortable, you will be your best self. When you are not comfortable, you will be, trust me, you, your worst enemy. You will say all kinds of things that you wish you never said. Um, and so a little bit of media training can go a long way simply to help you get comfortable with it, get over the phobia. Now, none of that was in my set of talking points. Um, instead, uh, and Emily asked a great question, and I decided not to respond to it in real time because I knew the majority of my comments, my prepared comments, were really in, in sort of a deeper level response to Emily's question, which is, you know, I, I start today with the assumption that every one of you has a day job where in one way or another or a whole variety of ways, you are trying to make a contribution to the world. And that fundamentally requires that you share information with people. You share your point of view, you share your knowledge, you share your insights, and it might even require that you do more than sharing information. And we're, we're going to talk about that. Um, my journalist friends have taught me not to step on my own lead, meaning say the most important thing you're going to say right at the get-go. So I decided to write my title, say everything I needed to say in my title, and that is to achieve your objectives. And I don't even care what your, the, the nuance, particular nuance of your individual objectives, but I know you all have objectives. You, you need not write this down. You can have these slides. Jan will provide them to you. Um, but to achieve your objectives, you need, to, uh, you need to communicate in a way that accentuates the relevant. Accentuates the relevant. We're going to talk about what that means. Um, and you need to make your recommended actions easy, fun, and popular for the people who you are trying to influence. These are really simple ideas. I am going to present them, hopefully, in a simple manner, because I love this guy, and I love his dictum, that everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler. Um, I, that is clearly what I'm going to try to do, present a couple of simple ideas to you this morning. I'm going to give you the key readings. Um, the key readings are actually a lot of fun. Um, one of them, I, I hope you will go and buy it uh, at Politics and Prose before you leave Washington uh, at the end of this week. Um, so today we're going to really focus on two things. One is we're going to focus on how to better inform key audiences. Key audiences meaning you do have to inform different kinds of people differently. Because if we're trying to accentuate the relevant, relevant information, the information that will be relevant will differ by different types of people. Um, and I, I'm going to teach you to think, as I do, that, that there's really two components of that. 
first thing we've got to do is we've got to determine what is worth knowing. Seth earlier talked about how difficult it can be to communicate effectively once you know too much. That's called the curse of knowledge. The curse of knowledge is a wicked curse because you completely lose touch with how what you want to convey will be perceived by the people with whom you are communicating. So the first step in making sure that you can better inform key audiences is you got to figure out what is worth knowing, and then you got to figure out how to best convey it. These are two distinct problems, two distinct challenges, opportunities. We'll talk about them both. Um, but then I'm a behavioral scientist by training. And my, while my PhD is in communication research, I've learned the hard way that communicating is often not enough to get the job done. Um, and that is because information is often not enough to influence people in the ways in which we hope to influence them. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about how to go beyond communicating to making it easier, more fun, and more popular to embrace the kind of recommendations that, that we are interested in seeing the world embrace. Um, for those of you who haven't seen Cool Hand Luke, it's one of my personal favorite movies, if for no other reason, because I love the line, what we've got here is a failure to communicate. Um, that is so endemic in the sciences. We really are terrible communicators, and Emily hit it right on the, the head. Um, we're not really taught to communicate to anybody other than ourselves. Four years of graduate school, you know, my, my four years were probably just like your four years. It was drilled into you, this arcane way of communicating to each other in a very prescribed, rigorous, demanding fashion so that ultimately you can, your ideas will survive peer review, you will get the grants that you're, you're, you're seeking um, with very little thought about the, the broader world around us. Um, and so all of those arcane rules of communication that we were trained in in graduate school really unfortunately do fairly routinely lead to a failure to communicate to the, to the broader world. Um, a friend and colleague of mine named Mike Rothschild, he's now an emeritus professor at the School of Business um, at University of Wisconsin, in uh, a 1999 article in Journal of Marketing, he posed the question, how do we, if, if what we're trying to do is influence people's behavior, not in a one-on-one -on -one sense, not me and Armin, for example, but, but if I'm interested in, in influencing your behavior as a population of scientists, I have sort of three general options available to me. One of those options is I can communicate with you. I can, um, I can produce and exchange information that will inform you, that will hopefully influence and motivate you, um, and not just you as individuals, but perhaps even the institutions um, of which you are a member. So it, it may well be that my goal isn't really to shape your behavior, but perhaps to shape federal policy, state policy, my local government, um, or the actions of, of multinational corporations. Um, so my, my first basic option is to provide you with information to communicate. Um, my next option is something that Mike called social marketing. It's actually, um, you could just drop the word social and just call it marketing. Um, and it's really the way that most organizations in our lives try to influence us. They don't necessarily communicate to us. They actually put products and services in our lives, or they offer the products and services to us in hopes that those products and services will elicit the behavior from us that they would like us to be performing. 
Um, and I want you to think about these as, as two distinct things. If I am interested, for example, let me give it, I'm trying to come up with a, a meteorological relevant example. If I am interested, I got one, um, in, in making sure that people don't hang around and decide to ride out uh, a category four or five hurricane, um, you know, we've actually done a lot of work to try to figure out what we say to get them to evacuate. Turns out that there are some people simply who aren't interested in what we have to say. Um, we could sort of parse the Katrina experience and we could look at those people who, I won't say decided not to evacuate, but who did not evacuate. And I contend that the majority of them didn't evacuate because they didn't have um, a, a product or a service that they felt sufficiently comfortable with and sufficient access to in order to be evacuated safely. So it wasn't a knowledge deficit, an information deficit. It was really a product or a service deficit in terms of those poor people we saw in the Superdome. Um, and then our third basic option, if we're interested in influencing the behavior of people and populations, is we can just legislate it we can use the force of law or public policy. Turns out that we Americans, we hate this option. We just, it just runs counter to our, our deeply individualistic nature and, and sense of self as Americans. But sometimes we do it anyway. Um, we, I'm a public health guy by, by profession. And um, in public health, for example, we decided that, well, we gotta, every car has to have seatbelts. Um, used to be, it was an option. Then we decided, well, okay, that didn't work as well as we had hoped. So now we're going to actually communicate and recommend, use communication campaigns to recommend that everybody use their seatbelts. Ah, it didn't work out so well either. So eventually we got over our natural um, abhorrence of policy and, and forcing people to do what they don't necessarily want to do. And we said, you have to do it. You gotta wear your seatbelt and you gotta buckle your kid up when you put your kid in the car. You gotta put a proper child safety restraint in there. Sorry, end of discussion. Um, we've also told motorcycle riders that they have to do it. And, and this, I, I tell this, make this point only to, to sort of reinforce my contention that we hate to legislate behavior. Um, while at one time, almost every state in the nation actually did have a motorcycle helmet law in place, um, a significant number of those have, have uh, essentially dismantled their laws because of opposition. Motorcycle riders hate to be told that they have to wear a helmet. Um, so these, Mike Rothschild said, these are our basic options. Yes, we can sometimes achieve our objectives solely through communication. When we can't achieve our objectives solely through communication, we'd be wise to think through, well, what are the other barriers to the behavior that we're recommending? And those barriers may well be because people don't have good options that make it easy, fun, and popular for them to do to perform the recommended behavior. And then finally, if none of that works, we may well have to just go ahead and legislate the darn thing. Um, so let me come back to the point of accentuating the relevant. And I've already said that what the first task is we got to figure out what is worth knowing, not what is worth knowing ourselves because we suffer the curse of knowledge, but what is worth knowing? What is it worth the people to whom we are providing information? Um, and to Emily's point, I'm not suggesting that any of you become 
communication researchers. Oh, sorry. This, this is sort of the simplest way of, of grappling with the what is worth knowing question. What, what one thing could you tell Homer to get Homer to, real, to recognize a, a threat, an issue, the way you do? Um, that could be just as well be almost anybody's x-ray. Um, and, and here's an x-ray of my brain. This is actually, um, this could well be the way I personally think about the issue of talking on my mobile phone or anybody talking on a mobile phone while they're driving. Um, I think that it is dangerous, I really do. I don't do it anymore, at least not with my kids in the car. Um, I think it's all too convenient, which is why probably two out of three cars on the road do it occasionally. Um, I think the reason it's dangerous is because it's incredibly distracting. Um, it leads to accidents, lots of deaths. It's, I've already said it's certainly widespread. This, this little diagram here, this is what cognitive scientists call a mental model. People who study the way we understand the world, the way we represent the world, tell us that this, this isn't a metaphor. This is, this is the, the best way they can explain the way we represent knowledge in our own heads. We form, we, we, we form beliefs about concepts. Those beliefs are connected to other beliefs. Some of these beliefs aren't solely cognitions or thoughts. Some of them are emotions. I don't think this particular one has a lot of emotion shown in it, but um, good mental model research actually shows how emotions and thoughts are interconnected in people's experience. Um, and this is actually what we know. This is, this is what I know about driving while talking on a cell phone. Um, and it's also how I know the world around me. So if you want me to think differently about this risk, you would be really wise to first figure out what it is that I know, because as it turns out, maybe I don't know the single most important thing that you know. The single most important thing that you know isn't anywhere in my mental model. And what would that tell you? it would tell you that if you could only tell me one thing, that's the one thing. Or maybe, what if something that I do know is absolutely wrong? So in fact, um, it really isn't, okay, I got it right, it's dangerous and it leads to death and 450 deaths per year. And, and maybe I say, well, that's not so bad. There's 300 million people in America, only 450 die a year. Maybe I got that wrong. Maybe it's actually 45,000 a year. And if you are a traffic safety researcher, maybe that's the one piece of information you decide to share with me. And because keep in mind, you can only share so much information with me because I have only so much patience to listen to you. Or Stated another way, I have only so much time in which to devote to listening to you. Um, so if you keep in mind that it that really you don't you don't want to step on your lead, you want to say the most important thing you're going to say right at the get-go because that might be the only thing you get an opportunity to say. And if it is, you know, if in this instance it's oh boy, Ed, you are so wrong. You you misread that somewhere, and it's it's forty five thousand. It's not four hundred and fifty, and that may well change how I see the risk that you care deeply about. 
Um, I, I love this one. Um, here's two conceptions, two mental models, if you will, of church. Clearly, they're both valid. Um, it's both it's based totally in these two gentlemen's experience of what their church is all about, probably because one is drawn to a more ebullient kind of church experience, and, and one is drawn to more of a, a, a thoughtful, pensive church experience. Um, so that there's no right or wrong here. But the reason I love this diagram is because it really does show you that in their mental model, when they think about church or when they evoke the experience of church, it's a totally different thing. Um, now, here's the relevance to you. Your mental model, your mental model about whatever your area of professional discipline is would be so much more cluttered than this one as to be almost undiagrammable because you have the curse of knowledge, you know so much more than does do you know the, the vast majority of other people. So you've got a very, very cluttered, very articulated mental model, and your mental model is going to be just radically different than any single audience of people that you want to share information with. Um, and so I, I took the liberty of actually modifying that diagram that I pulled off the internet. Um, and uh, with the issue of global warming, I, I'm very concerned about global warming and, uh, and the, the people that I work with at George Mason University who work on climate modeling and other aspects of global warming, you know, they clearly, whether they choose to say it in public or not, they are, disaster is clearly on their mind. Um, whereas I've met lots of people, members of my own beloved family, who comport perhaps more closely to this other mental model of global warming. They see a lot of upside in the prospect of warming because warm is good. Um, I particularly like the, the cold beer association. Um, this one I just found recently, and I think it's absolutely perfect. So here we've got John McCain talking to his Republican base about climate change. And you know, I, I, don't, I don't mean to dismiss his base, but the members of his base have mental models that tend not to associate climate change with a whole lot of positive um, people in our society and positive attributes of our society. Oh my God, he's a communist, or worse yet, he's French. Um, so this is, well, I'm sure the cartoonist didn't know it, this is a great cartoon about mental models. Um, so, as I said before, I'm not suggesting that you all become cognitive scientists, but what I am suggesting is it would be incredibly helpful if, as part of the larger team of people with whom you work, you actually did involve cognitive scientists in your work. Um, that, you know, they come in a variety of stripes and colors and sizes and shapes. Um, you, you can find communication researchers or, or yeah, cognitive psychologists or neuroscientists or what have you. Um, I'm going to introduce you to a friend of mine, a mentor of mine in a moment. Um, his name is Baruch Fishhoff, but Baruch says that fundamentally, what you, if you really are serious about being more effective in, in communicating, in exchanging information so that you can achieve the mark you're trying to achieve on the world, the first thing you got to do is figure out, well, what do the experts believe? Yeah, you're an expert. Okay, I give you that. But you're not the only expert out there. So it's probably, from my perspective, it's probably good to diagram the expert mental model across a variety of experts. But even if you can only diagram a single mental model expert, that's okay, because it's a, it's a formalized way of representing what the experts believe. You go through the same process with members of your target audience. What do they know? What don't they know? What do they, what do they think they know, which is actually not consistent with what the experts know? Um, 
essentially three fairly simple sets of information. And a comparison between this set of information and this set of information is an incredibly instructive communication planning device because you look at the you look at the overlap between the two and it immediately starts to point out starts to help it, it becomes the solution to the curse of knowledge because it points out the information disconnects between the experts and the target audience and it becomes if you will a hypothesis about what is most worth knowing Turns out there's a whole nother quantitative science called uh, message testing, which we could go into, except for the fact that I, I don't have time, nor do you. Um, but simply, you know, this is the basic logic model. Figure out what the experts believe, figure out what your target audience believes, compare the two sets of information, and let, let the, the differences between those point you to the most relevant information so that you can accentuate the relevant. Um, the formalized method in which you which you elicit mental models, um, it, it's you know there there are people who are trained in this, but it's a fairly simple way of doing open-ended interviewing. You're really asking four sets of questions. Tell me about the the risk. Tell me about what you know about hurricanes, climate change, um, any issue that that you work with. You know what what did, will anything good happen? as a result of climate change? Will anything bad happen as a result of climate change? Um, tell me what you know about how climate change is caused. Tell me what, um, tell me about how climate change could be slowed or stopped. And then finally, what decisions do you personally feel you need to make because of climate change? If you can do this kind of interviewing, and again, I'm not suggesting you personally do it, but if you have members of your team who are assessing the risks and benefits, the causes, the control mechanisms, and the decisions that your target audience will make, you are further enhancing your ability to accentuate the relevant, because you really are now going to, to be able to identify what information has the most relevance to members of your target audience. This is my mentor, my friend, Baruch Fischhoff. Um, this is his work, he, he has been the leader of all the work I have just been telling you about. He published an article in Environmental Science and Technology Online um, last fall um, by the provocative name, Non-Persuasive Communication About Matters of Greatest Urgency, colon, Climate Change. I highly recommend you read this article. It's a, just a, a beautiful synthesis of his, the past 30 years of his life as a risk communication professional. Um, he also said, and I don't have a slide, um, but it's a, a, a very brief, pithy quote. He said in an Institute of Medicine um, report that people simplify. Our job as scientific communicators is to help people simplify appropriately. That really is the opportunity that we all have to improve the way we communicate, the way we share information. So that's everything I've just talked about is how we find out what is worth knowing. Now is the question of, well, how do we actually convey it most successfully? And I used to say simple, clear messages repeated often by a variety of trusted sources. My day job, I'm a professor at the moment, but over large periods of my life, my day job was mounting public health education campaigns. Um, and this really was the formula that I tried to follow in order to mount effective public health education campaigns. Um, it worked in terms of um, dramatically reducing the rate of sudden infant death syndrome, 
Um, it, it worked in terms of, um, it worked in a whole variety of ways. I won't bore you with the details. Turns out I'm freely willing to admit the, uh, the, the uh, shortcomings of my own recommendations to myself and to others because I've updated my formula. It's a little bit less simple and pithy. Um, I, I now say simple concrete messages told in unexpected and emotional ways, ideally as stories, um, but still repeated often by a variety of trusted sources. Why would I torture my simple, clear, pithy phrase? Um, because these guys, a couple of brothers, Chip and Dan Heath, published a book in January of 07 called Made to Stick. This book is the one that I want you to all buy at Politics and Prose or your local bookseller. Um, it is absolutely a terrific book. Chip is a um, business professor at Stanford. Dan publishes non-traditional textbooks. Both of them have a singular focus on how do you make information stickier. If I'm sure all of you read Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, you're familiar with the concept of stickiness. This book is their response to Malcolm. Malcolm said, sticky ideas are good. They said, well, turns out we know a little bit about how to make ideas sticky. And they've distilled it into an acronym. And that acronym is success. And my students hate the fact that success is misspelled. It doesn't bother me at all because I'm a terrible speller. Um, but success stands for simple. You've got to make the information simple. Um, unexpected. Information that is unexpected has this marvelous way of getting beyond our perceptual filters. Why has the American people essentially ignored climate change for three decades? Because it kept coming at us in these tiny little increments that became all too expected, nothing unexpected about it. Um, frankly, until a former, a, a man who was almost president for a couple of days, you know, decided to make it his mission to tell us about it. And that really did bring a, a highly unexpected quality to the whole thing. Um, we got to make it concrete. Chip and Dan say that scientists in particular dwell in the realm of the abstract. We're trained as theorists to think in abstract terms, and therefore we often share our best thinking as abstractions. Real people, we dwell in the world of the concrete. And so ideas that stick are ideas that are made concrete. Credible, none of us lack in credibility, so we need not dwell on that point. Emotional. People, cognitive psychologists tell us, this was actually a great debate in my field for a couple of decades. Um, do people think first and then feel, or do people feel first and then think? Well, thanks to the emergence of the field of neuroscience, we now have a, a definitive answer to that question. People feel first and then think. So if we are sharing information with people in ways that assume that we think first and then we feel, it's a complete disconnect with the way the human brain works. We feel first and then we think, which is precisely why when we share information in emotional terms with emotional content, it connects directly with our affective systems, which is the instantaneous way in which we process information so that our, cogn our cognitive systems, our deliberative thought processes can decide to actually work through some of this information and make sense of it and make the decision about is this relevant to us or not. And then finally, Chip and Dan talk about the value of stories. They start the book by talking about Art Silverman. Just one second. Um, Art Silverman, Center for Science and the Public Interest. His office is just across town. Ten years ago, he held a press conference in which um, 
he said that an, a medium buttered popcorn at your local movie theater has as much saturated fat as um, bacon, egg, and cheese for breakfast, um, Big Mac and, and extra large fries for dinner, and, and some equally ludicrous dinner, and said, the, the amount of saturated fat in this one, you know, medium-sized tub of popcorn is equal to the saturated fat in those three meals that are displayed right here on the table in, in front of Bill, um, which none of you would feel good about eating any one of those meals, certainly not all three of them together, yet you don't give a second thought about eating this medium-sized tub of buttered popcorn. And um, that story has had a remarkable effect. First, in terms of media coverage, it made it was a simple story. It was highly unexpected, very concrete. Um, came from a credible source. It was delivered in an emotional way as a story. It was in every newspaper the next day. But more importantly, it actually led to a, a dynamic where all the large movie theaters essentially did away with um, the, the kind of oil that was used to pop their popcorn that put those 47 grams of saturated fat in the popcorn in the first place. So in terms of that particular scientist's objectives, which was to do something about all of that saturated fat in the American diet, he was incredibly effective with a simple, clear, credible, emotional story. Um, let's just play a little game here. So uh, Chip and Dan actually suggest that a great way to test your own communication is just try it in a couple of different ways. You know, write it once and then grade it based on these, these six criteria and then try to rewrite it specifically trying to punch it up based on these criteria. So uh, for any of you who work for or with Noah, my apologies, but I really did. I pulled this straight off the homepage of Noah's climate change website. This is, this is the, these are the first words. I did this about two months ago, three months ago. Um, and, oh, I'm sorry, Darshan, you, you had a question. Um, how do you delineate, in, in, with respect to climate, climate change, how do you delineate between delivering something emotionally mm -hmm. and fear-mongering? Um, it's a good question. Um, by any time you invoke people, whether the, the, the person is yourself and how you feel about something, or invoking the people who could be affected by the issue, the risk that you're talking about, that imbues emotionality into it. Anytime you deal only with the numbers, that tends to be rather devoid of emotion. Um, I would contend that there are many ways we can imbue our communication with emotion without fear-mongering. Um, and now, Darshan, since, you, since you've got the floor, would you actually do me the favor of just reading this? Re yeah, re reading it aloud, I'll, I'll give you the, the microphone. <laughs> Here's the other one. Let's, let's try this one. Yeah, that's The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. 
adaptation and vulnerability to climate change for the fourth assessment. Ongoing research conducted by NOAA contribu contributed to a large part of the progress that has been made since the third assessment in 2001. Many NOAA-funded activities contributed data and research to the growing body of literature on impacts and adaptation assessed by the 2007 report. NOAA's climate research and related work extends far beyond its contributions to IPCC and adds direct benefit to the nation and to the world through various products that are used in commerce, government, and the everyday lives of ordinary people. Said retired Navy VADM Conrad Lautenbacher, PhD, Undersecretary of Commerce for Oceans and Atmosphere and NOAA Administrator. I'm willing to only give that particular piece of web copy credible. I definitely give it credible because it comes from Noah and, and it evoked the Noah administrator and he's a uh, knowledgeable uh, guy and, and he's a great guy to be running Noah. But it, I don't think it really took advantage of any of these other attributes other than credibility. Uh, Benjamin, would you take the microphone and do us the, the honor of my um, copy editing Noah's website and, and keep in mind, I actually have worked for the federal government twice in my life. I know all about what you can and cannot say and trust me, Noah could have just as easily said it this way. Noah leads America's research on climate change, played a key role in worldwide Nobel Peace Prize winning effort. Noah has the privilege of leading the US government's climate change research program. Noah's research played a number of important roles in the worldwide research effort involving over 300 scientists called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which concluded that climate change is a serious risk that must not go unchecked. Many NOAA researchers and researchers working in universities around the nation with NOAA funding contributed data to the IPCC effort, which won the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize. I'm so proud of NOAA's climate research team. Our people are doing vitally important work that will help the nation and the world in so many ways, said retired Navy Admiral Conrad Lautenbacher, PhD, Undersecretary of Commerce for Oceans and Atmosphere, and NOAA Administrator. <laughs> I actually think that's what they were trying to say in the first place, but I, 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 it didn't, wasn't working for me. And so, um, you know, just re, I'm not the world's greatest writer. I don't earn my livelihood as a, a copywriter for the web. As a matter of fact, I'm told I'm quite bad at it. But even, even somebody who is ill-equipped as I am to, to punch up their copy, I don't know, maybe you agree or disagree, but I think I managed to, to simplify what they were trying to say a bit, um, make it a little bit more unexpected. Um, certainly, I hope to have made it more concrete. And uh, most importantly, perhaps, I, I do think it was more emotional because I talked about what Admiral Ladenbacher was feeling, the pride and the incredible team that he has and the incredible work that they have helped fund, that they've done themselves and helped fund in universities around the country. Um, so I would suggest that those, you know, basically it's the same information, more or less, but uh, Keith disagrees. And you may well be right on that, Keith. Um, I tried to actually stay within what I believed they they felt at the time, the policy 
statement, the policy position they were willing to take at the time based on where the administration was at the time. And, and I might have had that wrong. So, but it's just an exercise. Um, so all of that thus far was learning to identify what is most relevant and then learning how to convey it in ways that, that it will stick. Um, now, the point I made earlier, however, is sometimes information will not get the job done because there are simply too many barriers um, to people putting your recommendations into action. And that's when I suggest we are wise to think like marketers think. Um, marketers offer people products, services, and ideas that make their lives easier. We love it when our lives are made easier. Um, we love it when our lives become more fun. And you don't have to think about this in a literal sense, but you can also think about it in a literal sense. And we love to be popular, um, which means we, love to, we tend to gravitate towards popular things. I mean, there's nothing wrong with any of this. It's just what makes us human. Um, and as it turns out, actually, I'm not even doing violence to my own training as a behavioral scientist, because my three of my mentors and friends um, you know, have written thousands of articles or thousands of articles have been written on their ideas that talk all about, well, the people will perform the behaviors that are easy for them. It's called self-efficacy. So when we, it's, it is better to make it easier for people to do something than to teach them a whole set of skills that allow them to do something hard. If we're trying to influence people's behavior in a population, make it easier for them, which is fundamentally consistent with what my, my dissertation advisor, Albert Bandura, was saying. Um, if we want people to do it, show them the benefits. Show them the money. Um, doesn't have to be the money. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Um, but essentially, Ev Rogers, the father of diffusion of innovation, talked about you've got to be able to demonstrate the benefits of the behavior that is being recommended. And when people, in simple, clear, concrete terms, understand the benefits to them, they are dramatically more likely to go to the effort to, to seek it and acquire it. And then finally, Bob Cialdini talks about the incredible pull, gravitational influence of social norms. When we believe something is normative, it influences our behavior in a variety of ways that we're not even aware of. Um, his work is in, in terms of you know, demonstrating how we can make sustainable behaviors so much more um, normative in simple, inexpensive ways. It's just, it's just really mind-blowing mind stuff. Um, but equally mind-blowing is what Walmart did last year. My students love to bash Walmart. I don't really understand it because I actually think Walmart has this extraordinary potential to shape the world. They are shaping the world, and they actually are now trying to shape the world in a positive, more productive way. And one demonstration of this was last year, they decided to sell a million compact fluorescent bulbs in the U.S. Um, when they started out in January of 07, they were not entirely sold on the fact that they could get it done. But what they did is they made it easy. They filled the Walmart aisles with compact fluorescent bulbs. In January of 07, in the um, uh, hardware store in my neighborhood, there was about three, three types, and 98% you know, of the shelf stock was incandescents. Walmart changed that. They made it easy. And it, and it exerted a pressure in the marketplace such that others had to do the same. Um, I just like this cartoon. Here's the Cosa Nostra. Instead of plastic garbage bags, why don't we try these environmentally friendly canvas totes? Um, easy. 
Um, Walmart also, my, my slide got cut off, Walmart made it fun, fun in the sense that they were really, all of their signage, all of their point of purchase ed material was emphasizing the thing that matters most to Walmart customers, saving money. That's fun. Not in a literal sense, but that's the benefit that people are after. Um, just like, this is fun for dinosaurs. Let's divide into classes, form nation states, and compete for global resources. That's fun. Um, and then most importantly, they were the first one. They really did have the guts to try to make this popular. And how did they do it? They did it by saying, we're going to sell a million of these things this year. And guess what? They sold a million of them by September. By December, I believe they'd sold more like a, a, a million and a half or something. They have, I was at a conference recently with some Walmart sustainability people. This was the most incredible object lesson to them. They have completely changed the way they're thinking about their potential to promote products that are fundamentally more sustainable than they had in the past. This was a lesson to them and a lesson, frankly, to all of us about easy, fun, and popular. Um, oh God, here they come, act green. This is really a, a comment on that gravitational pull of, of a perceived social norm. Um, so that's it. I told you my lead was to achieve your objectives, communicate to accentuate the relevant, and make your action easy, fun, and popular. That's all I want you to think about. Um, these are members of my team. I love them. I have so much fun working with them at George Mason University. Um, we hope to have a chance to interact with you again in the future. Stop me when I've probably reached as much time as we should have. Actually, is it possible to, do you need this on? It's, no. it's sort of getting in my eyes, that's all. <clears throat> all right. <clears throat> the two phrases, the media and professional journalism, are in no way synonymous. The media are physical things, electromagnetic waves, clay and sticks, ink and paper. Those are physical things. Professional journalists are, are, is one group of hundreds of professions and other occupations that couldn't be called professions by a long shot that use various media. And as you've heard, of course, the media are complexifying enormously now. All of the previous media are now converging. And uh, in my pocket, I can, I can Google up video facts from anywhere in the world. I realized that suddenly at a conference up in Aspen three summers ago, up on a mountaintop with two other scientists arguing about something about how we're going to define dangerous climate change. Couldn't remember the name of a scientist. You know the story. I just, on top of a mountain, I Googled the, something about the scientist I talked to 20 years ago in the middle of this conversation. 
We live on planet Google, and media are now all converging together. Don't confuse these two if you really want to be good on this particular subject we're talking about today. I am a professional journalist. Other professions that use various media include politicians and prostitutes and poets and would-be professional journalists. There's a number of those around today. I'll talk in a moment about what a professional journalist is. But that's one of the things I was saying before. As with every other kind of story I've ever covered, the serious professionals or the serious participants in the midst of the story find um, each other. The professional journalists find the good, um, the good scientists. Now, this, what I mean by being a professional journalist is uh, something which is the opposite of being a propagandist. This is the second thing I would advise you. When, you come, when I come talk to you, or if you somehow inveigle me to, to come talk to you, whoever starts this, and usually it'll be a good journalist who finds you, because of your work as a scientist, and please don't forget that the communication is common sense, what I want when I come to talk to you is to talk to the great scientist, even if you're a complete recluse geek, that'll be great. I'll show that and say, this person has discovered something that we need to know about, and look, look what kind of a personal sacrifice this person had to make to discover this. <laughs> I know that sounds funny, but you're laughing because there's deep truth in it. You know what Freud said about jokes? What Freud said about jokes is that they're not just jokes. The French have a phrase for this, la déformation professionnelle. Every profession deforms you in some way. It's the sacrifice you make. And so um, when I come and talk to you, I'm going to want to talk to a, a climatologist or a meteorologist or somebody who actually went to the trouble of spending seven years up on this mountaintop to find out this thing. That's news. Now here's the main point I'm making. I am the opposite of, trying, of, of a propagandist. I am not trying to stop or slow down global warming. It's not my job. I am not, it's not my job to educate. I'm not an educator. I am a professional journalist. It's my job to bring you the news. I have two ways of describing that in a moment. But this is the first thing. When you come to me with a story and you know you have a righteous good cause that anybody who's a decent person would, would want to agree in, don't assume that I'm going to be your propagandist. I will not. I might secondarily, as a, as a secondary cause, as uh, St. Augustine would say, of doing my job well, do something which people who are against it would call propaganda. But that's not my job. So don't presume it is. Just be yourself. The camera never blinks. It reveals authenticity, as Gloria Steinem said once. The camera reveals character. If you're a good scientist, it'll show. If you know what you're talking about, it'll show. And uh, we who use various media tools like cameras know this very well. And we have many, many ways that we keep evolving as, uh, you know, as artists in the non-fiction world uh, to, to bring out authenticity. Some... some some TV producers have from time to I've heard, a, I'll tell you a couple of names that everybody now knows because these are great uh, scientists. It's already in the record. James Hansen and Edward O. Wilson, two of the leading scientists of our time. I have heard on occasion a couple of uh, producers, TV producers, say, oh, oh, Hansen is so bad on camera. Can't we just, can't you say what he said? And I've heard the same thing said about Edward O. Wilson. Here's the truth. Hansen is great on camera, and so is Edward O. Wilson. 
they are great scientists and and the camera reveals character they're only bad on camera if you've got a slapdash journalist going in there wanting to grab a soundbite and getting out and say oh he talks kind of slow if you've got a really good journalist putting that tv spot together they're going to set him up with the perfect uh, seven word sentence and 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 set it up just right so that the audience is going to want to say who's this guy and then James Hansen is going to come out with what we've discovered to be that I, I think he grew up on an Iowa farm, probity, which has an astonishing record for accuracy. Or Ed Wilson with his lovely Louisiana charm and, and smile coming out that uh, even he can't see out of one eye, as he says in his autobiography. He turns out to be absolutely fascinating if the journalist reporting him is real. This is no different in science than it is in any other kind of stories. So I'm the opposite of a propagandist. I'm not trying to slow down global warming. Here's a metaphor for you. Um, it's my job as a professional journalist. I'm trying, trying to figure out how to talk to my other, my fellows about this in some way. What is our job as professional journalists with the global warming story? One of the metaphors we've come up lately with, and like climate models, which are a kind of a metaphor, metaphors are never perfect, but this one's pretty good. It's the job of the professional journalist in this story, I think, to be like the translator for a cancer patient who has just been seen by the 100 best cancer experts in the world for that, you know, for whatever kind of cancer this cancer patient has, but the cancer patient doesn't happen to speak the language of these experts. The journalists, in this case, walk into the middle, and, and, and then let's go over to what the cancer patients, I've been watching a lot of House lately, so I picked up a couple more phrases. I know it's not realistic, don't worry. But, 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 but I know that they use a lot of very um, authentic phrases, and I've heard this from other scientists as well. When, when a patient has a really serious, maybe a fatal condition, maybe one that can't be treated, the doctors have this phrase uh, when they're talking to young doctors about how to give bad information to patients. Um, you've got to tell the patient what the patient needs to know. Um, and in some cultures, of course, uh, I don't think this is the case in America anymore. In some courses, the, in some cultures, the family units are still enough together that the idea is the doctors will tell the family group, but not the patient, you've got terminal cancer. We are in a position like that right now. I mean, as best as we can tell from what all of the scientists have come to an understanding after 40 years is that the, the patient here, which is civilization-sustaining uh, ecosphere, has um, a kind of very serious cancer. It could be terminal for civilization if a lot of very careful actions are not taken very soon. Are you going to be aggressive about this or not? It's not my job to stop global warming. It's not my job to slow it down one second. It's my job to communicate. Alistair Cook, one of the greatest journalists of our time, said that one of the major jobs of the journalist is to be the link between the experts and the public. It doesn't want you to stop being experts with whatever deformation professionnelle you may have. But there's no harm. In, in, in a certain sense, Ed was just talking to you just now about being, uh, let me use the word in a good way, propagandist, to be effective communicators, to get your message across about what you want. But what we want from you as a public in general is really good meteorology or climatology, obviously. So that's just to make this distinction very clear. Now, obviously, many of the great scientists, uh, and let's take the two I've, uh, I've already talked about, are people who themselves recognized a long time ago that just because they were scientists didn't mean that it wasn't their job to also be human beings and try to get the word across to the public. And James Hansen and Edward O. Wilson each at a certain point realized, it's not going to slow down my science. In fact, it may help it to try to have to explain it better. And I've interviewed them on that subject and they say, I suppose it does. 
and it improves their science, they think, and they, and they continue to be breakthrough scientists by trying to communicate it. But they also choose their journalists very carefully. That's the main point I'm, I'm, I was saying before about this. Now, what is the job of a professional journalist? There's this old conundrum that bounces around journalism schools and newsrooms everywhere, is that the job of the professional journalist, forgive me for interrupting myself, what does the word profession mean? It comes from the old Latin professio, I promise. It's kind of an existential promise to have a profession that you make to the world at large. I promise that I will be here every day trying to do this sort of thing. So to the best of my ability, I promise I will try to do this. You can count on me for this. I know you've got, you've got a busy job. You've got to make the donuts all day, whatever you do for a living. At the end of the day, I promise I'll be there trying to tell you what may have happened that day that you want to know about. So the old conundrum is, is the job of the professional journalist to give the audience what they want to know about, or should you give them what you think they ought to hear about? But you're nodding. What's the answer? <laughs> I will. It's a trick question. The answer is neither. By definition, if you give the audience what they want to hear about, it ain't news. And if you give the audience what you think they ought to hear about, that's just personal propaganda. Or maybe your company is more likely because you want to keep your job or some combination. It, this is really common sense what I'm about to say here. It is the job of the professional journalist to give the audience what they didn't know they would realize it was an important thing for them to learn until they learned it. I've never really quite figured out how to say it in fewer words, but that doesn't matter. You get the idea and it's common sense. It's true of actually any kind of endeavor in the world. If you're gonna run a business, be a doctor, be a preacher, be a professor, what you're always going for, it has, it's not unrelated to what I was just talking about with surprise here. We're always trying to add perspective in the whole history of of the scientific evolution, it's not that the new science replaces the old, it adds perspective and so gives surprise. I mean, Newton didn't replace Ptolemy, he, he gave us a bunch of surprises on top of Ptolemy, and Einstein on top of him, and Bohr on top of him. We're always adding perspective. Now, this is very common sense goals as well, I think. We are all blind men at the elephant. And we know two of us give the same description of the elephant when we go back to the village to describe the strange creature. And so you want to hear from more than one blind man, but you want to hear from blind men who will be honest about the fact they're blind. All human communication is biased by definition, obviously. First you choose, you're going to talk about this rather than that. Then you choose which words you're going to use to talk about that. Then which tone you're going to talk about it with. All human communication is biased. So that raises the question, what's the difference therefore, between a propagandist and a journalist. Don't get me wrong. Propagandist or activist, if you will. Um, if the world had to choose between having just journalists or propagandists or activists, maybe the latter is more important. I'm not saying it's necessarily bad, but we should, by the way, talk, talk about the fact that there has been a major disinformation campaign to keep America confused for ever since 1988. Uh, ever since that great scientist James Hansen told the world what was happening, that fossil fuel companies, as has now been well documented, realized they had a big fight on their hands and they hired some of the same PR firms, according to the documentation I've seen in books by Ross Gelsman, hiring some of the same PR firms that Big Tobacco did to keep American confused. So that's an additional reason to the other one that Ed told you about, about why America hadn't, there's about seven reasons that have come up with so far about why the, the public hasn't fully coalesced on what is now very clearly the greater climate change crisis. 
but one of them was a disinformation campaign uh, bought by propagandists. So what's the difference between a professional journalist and a propagandist? <clears throat> all observation is obviously biased, as I just described. We're all blind on the elephant. This is really simple common sense as well. It works like this. It's not in a literal sense that a professional journalist is somebody who sets his biases aside when he reports, um, and a propagandist uh, isn't. Because ultimately, you can't set all bias aside. Now, obviously, that's a very good kind of rule of thumb uh, for a student uh, of journalism. You want to get objectivistic, is the word I like to use. You want to try to be as objective as possible. There's no such thing as total objectivity. But the only way you can really describe it, I believe, is this. The difference between a propagandist and a professional journalist is that a professional journalist is someone who is open about his biases in one way or another, and then is constantly putting them to the test. That's how we do journalism. A propagandist will not be open about their biases, even to themselves, and that's why those who are evil ones ultimately go crazy, I think. They can they ultimately face themselves. But but the process of being a journalist in the sense that Karl Popper, the father of modern design, <coughs> talks about is one of conjecture and refutation, if you will. Um, just briefly to review, Karl Popper um, uh, realized that confirmation alone, verification alone, does not really prove a, um, a scientific hypothesis. Astrology, you, can, you know the famous statement, from George Bernard Shaw about how he was amazed for three years he'd been reading his horoscope and astonished every day how true it was. And then one day he read all the other ones as well. <laughs> we have minds that like to find patterns and so we're always looking for confirmation. But what Karl Popper realized was that that's not the way science advanced, that's not the way new hypotheses came up. He tried to figure out how can you describe the difference between high quality hypotheses like, for example, Einstein's and those of astrology. And this is absolutely central to, to, to professional journalism and to your jobs. You're scientists. And uh, the, the book title that I have in my mind for the book that I'm always going to be writing, as any good journalist always has a book title in mind, is, is Spotcraft. I do TV news Spotcraft. The science of journalism and the art of the story. We are very much like you scientists with regard to probity, is the, I guess the best word here. And... And what makes a, a scientific hypothesis, as you all know very well, uh, one of property and value is that it is a high-risk hypothesis. That means it's stated in, return, in terms that you immediately know how you could disprove. It's refutable. And then it makes predictions that are surprising. They're high-risk predictions. They're ones that people otherwise would not have expected. That's a very good description when you get down to it of a good news story. It's stated definitely. We're putting our credibility on the line when we state it, and we've done some work and dug something out that you didn't know. So you can always count on that community of intellectual style, you scientists, when you're talking to us professional journalists. But be careful when you're talking to us. Choose us well. That's that's the basic that, that's the, the basic idea. Some of the other basic ideas of, of, of how I would describe you what a journalist is is that we are people, as I said before, um, who know how not to report what we don't know when the um, deadline arrives. And that's why when a big story suddenly breaks out in a new country that nobody really ever heard of, you don't want to send in a, a scholar who's been studying that country and speaks its language. Believe me, uh, 
That's the last kind of person you're going to want to hear from is, is an academic on that day. You want to hear from a professional journalist. Even if that journalist had never known about that war before, you send in a professional journalist to that country. This happens every now and then. We get called up at 3 o'clock in the morning and sent somewhere. A professional journalist goes into a new country and knows at the end of the first day how not to report what he doesn't know. He sits down and says, hmm, I'm brand new here. What have I seen? What sent me here? Why was my office so excited here? And they'll sit down and they'll write a first day story, which is riveting to read, because they'll tell you, among other things, this is, in one way or another, they'll indicate to you, I'm brand new here. I've never been here before. But a, but a person with no evidence coming, no, no experience coming in here will see this, 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 and this. Where does that lead? There's a million ways into a story. That, that's something we have in common with you. And in my own case, um, I've been covering all kinds of other stories for a long time, um, and then three and a half years, and, and a lot of hurricanes, actually. I've done a lot of hurricane reporting for 20 years, but I've been talking to a certain hurricane scientist about global warming that sort of spun me away from it for a long time. Every time I finish doing a story with him about hurricane science, and this is a man who is still greatly revered by all of his former students, although he is now not revered at all with regard to global warming, um, they, they greatly admire his ability, his, his preternatural ability, to look at a field of data and see patterns that no machines could ever see. Um, but now he's gone, he's stuck in that position. He, he had been telling me for a long time, whenever I turned the camera off on the hurricane, I said, what about global warming? He said, oh, there's nothing there. Too many butterflies? I said, he said, yes, too much chaos in the, in the data. So I discovered it all almost three and a half years ago. I came into the story all at once. Uh, I'm going to bore you with the details of why it happened to. And I looked around and I said, oh, wow, this is very serious. I was directed to nature, read three meta-studies, not one, but three meta-studies on the effect on biodiversity, and could immediately see that it was a real story, and then just started working this story as a professional journalist, the way I had the Vatican, the way I had a number of different wars, the way I had various other beats I've been given before, the education beat. You go in and you start working the story. You find index sources. One of the things, uh, as a term I came up with when I was covering the Vatican, I found about four or five different people who were in the Vatican, which is really, it's, it's not a closed place at all. It's, it's got 3,000 people work there, and they're all sources. And the, the trick is, as in any institution, is to get to know a number of people who you can go to when another story comes up and ask, now who should I talk to about this? And it's all oh, there's Father such and such who's 72 years old, he's been sitting over in that department, and he knows a million things about that, and you go and call him up and buy him a cup of coffee. You work the story. Um, <clears throat> and it's common sense. Now, now that's my understanding of what the, the basis of a, of a journalist is. And three and a half years ago, a professional journalist, and three and a half years ago I, I got into into this story. Uh, <clears throat> and I realized as soon as I did that everything up to then had been practice, apprenticeship. This is the real deal. I read James Love the I read I read James Lovelock's book indeed it was the review of his book, The Revenge of Gaia, that suddenly gave me a deep wrenching in here and I said, Oh my goodness, is it possible civilization itself could be a risk here? That humanity might not even make it? And I suddenly began to realize even more deeply because it was on my own my own nerves of uh, the psychological aspects of the story, because I realized early on that this is by far the most psychologically burdensome story I'd ever covered. And that's including all those wars and all those terrorisms and all those horrible earthquakes that I've gone into. This is, of course, the most psychologically burdensome story there is. And then when I started talking every now and then, when I'm invited to talk about global warming and all of the things I've learned about it, I started mentioning the psychological burdens in this story and found that afterwards people said they really appreciated hearing about that. And I realized that the reason that I talk about 
the fact that uh, you know when we think about the possibility of humanity really suddenly being of civilization being upset in, in 2050 or beyond, the I started talking to psychologists and they would say things like, "Yeah, we know about that. That's called the investment in future generations." If, if a human doesn't have the ability to invest in future generations, or what Eric Erickson, the psychologist, called a sense of generativity in the last third of your life, taking joy in knowing you're doing something to make things better for the world after you leave, they said that quality is something we recognize as a symptom of mental health. If they're treating a patient who is very depressed or mentally disturbed, and then after a, a long series of, of therapy, that person begins to recover a sense of generativity. Uh, the psychologist, the shrinks told me, we can see then that full mental health is coming back, a much more deep balance inside. So that was one indication to me of beginning to identify the psychological qualities, the many psychologies actually in the global warming story. They're not all negative, they're not all about denial. I began to talk to psychologists about the fact that, and I think this is a very important thing to talk about here today, is this is a story which which, op which is unprecedented in many ways for our editorial culture, but which opens up psychological challenges, the best answer to which I believe is just naming them and talking about them and recognizing them. For example, the psychologists have taught me that our meaning systems get shattered whenever we experience trauma. You know, people who are traumatized, refugees from war, uh, often become completely despondent. They don't want to live, they, become, they have PTSD or even worse, chronic depression as has been found in many of the refugee camps. And this is, the psychologist tells us quite simply, because when you're traumatized, similar to when you're being beaten or when somebody's being raped, you know, there's all these stories about how people dissociate, they have out-of-body experiences. This is in denial, in various many forms, is initially a very healthy reaction that we have evolved over the millennia to help keep our meaning systems together. What this kind of denial does is it, uh, as the psychologist said, you get traumatized, it shatters your meaning system, everything falls apart. And so in refugee camps, what they need is the ability to get back to work, to get back to the place of worship, to, go, to help other people, to sort of reaffirm their own experience. And we're also possibly sometimes victims of future traumas, as has already been studied by people who study the effect on us of the potential for nuclear holocaust. That means people hearing about global warming are, each in their own various ways, suffering a little bit of trauma by how frightening the potentials are if we don't get a hold of this. And the important thing to do there is to, uh, is to recognize it, uh, to understand that it is psychological, so that um, people can acknowledge their own feelings. Now, this is, this is just to give you a, a hint about how we, how we can begin to talk about this story. Um, so let me just end on this, this thought. Uh, with regard to... Uh, to the leadership question. You, we all know the famous phrase, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Maybe FDR's single most famous phrase that survived in, down through history. 1933, just become president, he was finally going to get serious about trying to get America to, to really fight through and, and recover from the Great Depression. Now what that phrase was, was meta-psychology. He was talking to the public about their own psychology. He was saying to the public, in effect, hey folks, let's, let's, let's gird up our loins, let's get our act together, be your own shrinks, find your own shrinks, handle your own affect. Um, we've got a serious situation here. And then I started looking back through history and found that, that 
throughout history you find that when great leaders are finally going to get serious about really trying to deal about something, they start talking to the people about their own emotions, their own affect. And all I'm saying here in terms of communication is um, there's no... It, it's, it's, it's good at least to be aware of the fact that you're, you're talking about a subject here which, as it all begins to come together, and we're in a profoundly different world with this than we were two years ago when we were trying to get the story on the year, or even a year ago. You're talking about something that is connected in people's minds and will be increasingly to psychologically disturbing matters. Don't be afraid of it. In terms, in, in my, my personal advice as a communicator myself is, don't be, acknowledge this. It's, it's part of what we're dealing with here. Humanity all as a whole, in a very unprecedented way, is having, is having to face this now. Now, good communicators are going to be dealing with that. The, the other definition I have of what a journalist is, I gave you my long one, you know, the, the, the one that the, a journalist is somebody who gives people stuff that they didn't know they wanted to know until they knew it, which is, by the way, why I appear sometimes to be maybe an advocate to people who don't want me to report on something. But obviously, if the, if the Chinese army is coming down, the, coming down the highway from Alaska, it's not good news, but you'd want to know, right? If, or, obviously, if the whole atmosphere, this is, I know this is completely incredible, but believe me, it could happen. Suppose the whole atmosphere started to warm up a little bit and, and threatened us. It may not be good news, but people would want to know about it, right? And so that might appear to be advocacy. And believe me, when I started reporting on, global, on climate change and the global warming phenomenon three years ago, Various people assumed I was an advocate. Totally wrong. If, I, if my job was going to end up being like a, like a minister helping the audience, the public understand that the scientists are saying it's over, that's what I'll be reporting. I'm not an advocate in that way, except for good journalism. There's one other good definition, though, of, 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 of the core credo essence of a truly authentic professional journalistic impulse that I heard from an a, a, a environment reporter for the PBS, a fellow named Chris Joyce. It's the same thing, basically. He says, my definition of a journalist, of, of the true journalistic impulse is, I've just learned something. It's, 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 really, it's really fascinating, and I go up and I grab somebody at the lapel, and I say, hey, I've just learned this, and I want you to know this. Okay, now this is it. Now, have you got it? You got it? Fine. Okay, bye. <laughs> That's what I do for a living. <laughs> Tony, just a process point. So we're running late because I know people really have questions for, for both Tom and for Bill and for you. And so we're going to run until 12.20. But at 12.20, we really have to get downstairs and eat to be fair to our 1 o'clock speaker who's going to be here uh, promptly and keep going. Does that sound like a fair... That, that sounds like a fair uh, procedure from here on out. I would ask both the questioners and the people on the panel here to sharpen up your questions, narrow them down to one sentence as opposed to three, and the same in terms of the response. Don't sidestep the answer, but rather be succinct in your responses as well. Okay, so I meant to say Ed. Yeah, Ed was hiding back there. I didn't see him sitting there. So I'm including yeah, Ed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or you've got a mic over there, wherever you want to be at. Uh, Let's start with Keith. Did you get your question answered yeah, in the last round? Fine. What about you, Tom? Yeah, I You did? No, Way back. Oh, okay. Can you explain it? Can yeah, sure. Come come Could mic. you please use the microphone? Yeah. Sure. Thank you. <coughs> My question.
question is related to public perception and what role that plays in reporting and communicating. As that changes, do you, does that help to inform what stories you choose to write and what you communicate? Um, which I goes a little bit against the definitions bill you were talking about, but I just wanted to see how, how that plays a role in the work that all of you do. I don't think it goes against it at all. Uh, we're always surfing the front edge of what the public seems to know or be, um, or, or we suspect they'd be fascinated to learn. Interesting is a word we go for often, much more in some ways even than important. Uh, it, it doesn't go at all what I, against what I was saying. I mean, we're always, we have this, journalists have this word that we use in a unique way among our profession, which is, is it a story? Oh, I don't know, it's not a story. Now, when we journalists use this word story in this offhand way, we're, um, we're also including in it our sense of, um, have, we got a, have we got a journalist who can write it in an interesting way, who can bring it together in an interesting way? There's no such thing as a boring story. There, every story has that point within it where the unknown begins. At that point, it becomes news. And if you've got a journalist who's got the edges on it and editors who know how to help it get to the air, then I mean, we're always conscious of that. I, I would say... Three things quickly. One is that uh, journalists know what educators have learned, uh, although maybe not all of your professors, which is that Pavlov had it exactly wrong. It's not stimulus dictates response. It's that you need to know what the response will be, and that dictates the stimulus. That's how good teachers teach, right? So as journalists, we need to figure out what is what is the audience thinking, what it, where is the audience, to tell our stories effectively. Another way of thinking of that is um, uh, that uh, the job of a journalist is to make the significant interesting. To do that, you have to know what your audience will think. And the third way I, that journalists talk about this is there aren't any bad stories, just bad reporters. But, but, but it's never paint by numbers. I mean, right. everything that Tom just said, plus the fact that we're always trying to give the audience what they didn't know they would agree they needed to learn until they learned it because they didn't know they needed to know it. So it's never paint by numbers. It's always, if it's any good, it's always a, it's always a, a risk. Right, that nexus of what's a story is, okay, this is important <coughs> and it's interesting. If it's important and it's of no interest to anyone, then it's actually not that important and it sort, of, it, it sort of falls away from being a story. So, my, can I ask a quick, quick follow-up? So, with current public perception, is the focus more on the science, the impacts, or both, which may be different than where we're at? Well, when I got into the story three and a half years ago, all at once, I realized very soon that one of the scenarios, psychological scenarios, that few journalists had had yet that got to, to break through was the scenarios barrier. In other words, there was an enormous amount of very, very solid science that was uh, out there that, that a journalist bothered to translate, they couldn't, we're finally doing it now, that would show the public what's waiting for us if we don't act now. It's always been recognized. The problem with the story is, to a large degree, that um, the worst is way out there. We have to act now to prevent the worst out there. A little bit complicated, but not that complicated to explain to them that it's too late to prevent another two degrees Fahrenheit warming by 2050. We're in for 40 very bad years, according to all the scientists. The big question is, do we want James Lovelock's scenario of only a few breeding pairs of humans left at the, at the poles? You all know this, right? So the question is, and, I, and, and there's very good news here, I think, 
you know, can we tell the audience now about what's going to happen in the future? It's just a matter of figuring out new ways to tell it. Let me, let me just add one other thing very quickly. People, journalists, and you already heard a little bit about this. Journalists are always trying to figure out, who do I, how do I write this? Who am I aiming at? And, <coughs> and somebody said second grade education. I think that's not actually correct. But uh, the way that people, journalists, often think of it is you're telling a friend in a bar, you're writing a letter to your mother, or the way Ted Koppel once described to me was, he thinks of his audience as very smart 14-year-olds. They don't know a lot about anything, but they have the capacity to understand a lot. Way back there in your next class. Um, while he's coming up, Tom, let me just follow up. There's a lot of comment in the uh, Columbia Journalism Review and a few other places on what happened to the coverage on the Iraq War and disconnect between what surveys seem to show about what people would like to hear more about and what reporting is actually focusing on. Why that disconnect if you're, as reporters, being sensitive to what you know, people are gravitating towards? Yeah, war now, not yeah. run. What, there, what, what yeah, that's our data. Um, uh, a lot of things happened. One was uh, the war is really expensive to cover. Uh, when CBS cycles out Laura Logan now, they don't have anybody in Iraq except producers, and they won't get them on the air. Um, another is that the story has an enormous repetition to it, uh, and journalists have tried to figure out how to deal with that. Um, uh, mobility in Iraq is, pro is profoundly uh, uh, limited. Uh, we surveyed the journalists who have been in Iraq uh, for extended period of time, 118 journalists who and the majority of them cannot get to most of Baghdad, let alone most of the country. Uh, and then you had uh, this other thing, which is what uh, we call um, sorry, a campaign for president. Uh, and <laughs> that thing has sucked up all the oxygen, all the territory, so um, uh, 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 you know, Cable News devotes, according to our measures, 70% of its time to the campaign. Why? Because it's helping their ratings. Uh, and they're not, you know, cable news in many ways doesn't cover the news, it exploits it. Uh, and um, so all of those factors have, have driven this. The coverage has not shriveled quite so much on nightly news and uh, newspapers, but it, 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 but it has significant impact. I mean, the numbers are. In the first three months of 2007, 25% of the news hole was devoted to the war in Iraq. Uh, in the first three months of 2008, it was 3%. Yeah. As, uh, as Bill Moyers was saying, you can slice that and cut a little deeper, too, and say, well, I don't have to be in Iraq. In other words, there are other manifestations of the war here that are being covered by the cost. Yeah, well, there's one more that, stories on the cost. Bill keeps talking about the psychology. There's another element of this. Uh, which I think journalists have intuited about the psychology of the story, which is people have said, I know what the situation is in Iraq. It's not changing. I've kind of decided what I want, and that we're waiting for this election to occur to decide what we're going to do next. I think that's not the right answer, but I think that to some extent has influenced the decision-making about uh, that government. You probably use the war as uh, an example for the questions that I have, particularly uh, what happened in the beginning and the choice of going to war, the decision of going to war. But the question is, um, uh, mainstream uh, uh, 
media in this country uh, is known to present a very skewed view of facts. Uh, where is an example? Um, um, so how does that skewed version, how that skewed vision of, uh, of, uh, that the media has um, compares, or in your, your views, compares to, uh, to, the media, to the media representation in, in other parts of the world, particularly when it comes to climate, to climate change, uh, are we perhaps presenting a little bit of a skewed version of the, of the whole climate perspective, or how do we Well, I can offer a couple of quick observations. Um, I was involved in a, a study group in the Council on Foreign Relations back in 1985, in which we, um, we, we basically find out, found out that any way you look at it, um, in, in this country and probably in many other countries, the president has an enormous influence, whoever the president is, on the agenda of, of the media, the mainstream media. Um, a bully pulpit that could be used. I myself have no political identity at all. All I can tell you is that I am a professional journalist from that point of view. But it's no secret that the Bush administration of the last eight years has not used the bully pulpit to talk about global warming. As recently as a year and a half ago, the president, roughly speaking, and I forget the exact number of months, the president has been saying three times within three months or within a half a year, well, the planet's warming, but the question is, is it man-made? And this was long after, um, well over 99%. Right. So my point is that um, I don't, I haven't, monitor closely the other media in Europe and other parts of the world on this subject. I know that it's a very mixed picture from, the, from what I'm hearing from all sorts of people in India and in China with regard to the public about it. Um, and we do know that, who, that, that whoever is the next president, all three of the candidates now, it's down to two, but all three of them were, were saying whenever they brought it up that, that this is going to be a big deal. And we know that it will be, and that will change it. That will change very quickly now. And I would refer you directly, uh, in, in this case, I would refer you directly back to a great journalistic, I think I would call him a professional hero of mine, a man named Ross Geldspan, who came out of retirement as a Pulitzer Prize winning editor at the, at the Boston Globe, discovered global warming, um, discovered how serious it was, and wrote two books that exposed the, the very well-orchestrated and I would say highly successful disinformation campaign from the fossil fuel companies to keep the American public much more confused, and they still are quite confused, according to many polls, about what the scientists have, after 40 years of debate, long since uh, agreed on. They have an understanding um, of the basics, that it's happening, it's us, it's dangerous, it's, it's real now, and uh, it's, it's extremely grave if we don't do something. A disinformation campaign starting in 1988 has been documented by Ross Gelsman on that subject, and I, I don't think there's, I don't think that the investigations of that are over yet. Uh, Bill, can I turn that question around? That answer you gave just around back on you, not you personally, but from a journalistic perspective. Um, how, how did that come about? In other words, uh, you can mount a disinformation campaign, but you have to have some way of amplifying it and getting the message more broadly spread. What's the role of journalism in that? In that the role of professional journalism. The, the role of professional journalism, uh, when that kind of disinformation campaign is mounted, is to expose it. And uh, Ross Gelbspan did 
He was retired. He didn't have to at all. He wasn't getting paid for it. I, I personally believe, I'm not talking, don't get me wrong, I'm very proud with ABC News to work for them, but when I went to them three and a half years ago with these concerns, they said, well, start pitching stories, and I did, and we got them on the air. But the role of the professional media is to expose such disinformation campaigns. It's, there's a lot of parallels here to what happened with Big Tobacco, as far as we can tell from Ross Gelbspan's work and that of Chris Mooney and some others. And I, my personal hunch is that it will be looked back upon as one of my profession's greatest failures, and possibly our greatest failure, was to have allowed the disinformation campaign about um, the reality of global warming uh, to, to, have, to have gone on as long as it did, and to degrees that it still is going on. It, 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 it's effective, this disinformation campaign, because of a number of things. It plays upon our natural denial needs. When you hear about this frightening story, you don't want to believe it. It plays on the desire of everybody to do assume the least bad possible, given the horrible news you've just heard. It plays on various different combinations of ideological fears of too much government. Um, I heard somebody say, oh, gee, this is a libertarian nightmare. Yeah, it is. It's not just a nightmare for libertarians. Um, it's, 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 um, it's a big problem. And it's a, it's a, a great situation. But it, I think that will be looked at. Our, our profession is very young. It's only 90 years old. It's one of the youngest professions, as Tom was telling you. It, it, was, only, it was only about 1910 that it began to be the case that people called journalists did not ex that people called journalists wanted to be something other than propagandists. Up until then, journalists themselves and the public expected them to be propagandists. This ideal of objectivistic approach to things is very young. And so we're still learning how to define our, our profession, which is an international guild. We, it's it's like, like being a doctor is or being an artist is. It's an, it's an international occupation. And we're still very young learning how to defend it. But I think we failed there. Class. Bill, one thing you said in your presentation uh, sort of struck a note with me, which is that uh, journalism is not paint by numbers. Um, but I think that a lot of times in uh, my interaction with the media, I've, I've, from stories I've heard from other people this week. Uh, with the media? With, sorry, with uh, reporters. Uh, I don't know if they were professional journalists or just part of uh, representatives of the media. Um, representatives of physical things? You, you see my point here? Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Keep asking. Uh, that, that seems to be their approach. Uh, their? Whose? The reporters that I've interacted with. It seems to be that they view their job as paint by numbers, or at least that that has been their approach when covering the, the scientific story that I have. Well, all I can suggest to you is that you not have another way to define which journalist you might want to spend any time with. Well, so that's because, believe me, if it's, journal, if it's a really good story, if it's really news, it's never paint by numbers, by definition. And, of course, we all have minds that put away pain. We all have minds that want to think we know what we're supposed to do. I'll, be, I'll feel much more comfortable today. But to me, if I just go out and, and get the answers that everybody expects I'm going to get, and some editors, if they're not good editors, are happy for, to take that. But it, 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 here's another definition that I think is perfectly relevant, per pertinent here. It is, the, it is the job of the professional journalist to change his mind as often and as well as he honestly and usefully can. We have the privilege in our profession of being trained to enjoy changing our minds. Many people 
settle, I guess, in other ways, all of us, all of us, settle into ways of wanting to not have to change our minds too much, because changing your mind is always frightening. And to be a true professional means you inure yourself to having to change your mind so that it's not, to look for the unknown. So in your profession, you do the same thing. You're on each other's case all the time, right? But I, I, let, me just, let, me, let me try and add something here. Uh, just to, Bill is a, uh, is a, 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 a journalist of high quality, and as one of the things that, that journalists who do that at a high level do is they aspire and sort of affirm those things. Uh, I have the, uh, a different job. I'm a press critic, and I observe uh, the broader uh, landscape. Um, and I would say that journalism is, is splintering in, in the sort of three general uh, groups. Um, the journalists who, uh, who have high aspirations uh, and who define it as a profession and all the things that Bill describe uh, are getting better. Uh, the profession, however, the business, is also uh, got fewer resources. And the, the kind of work that is done in haste, without real knowledge, uh, paint by numbers, uh, is expanding. There is more of that craft work than there used to be. Uh, if you have any encounter with local television news, it's almost always going to be paint by numbers. Um, uh, I've followed that field closely for 10 years, and it's a lot worse than it was uh, 10 years ago. Uh, and then you've got uh, the sort of the informed amateur bloggers and others who are not really journalists, but who know a lot, uh, and who kind of veer in another world and are going to meander in toward propaganda as well. Uh, and so you're going to encounter all of that. But what you're hearing from Bill is almost the kind of girding that uh, uh, the very best do to buttress themselves against the tide which is, un, I think, is unmistakable. But it's not lapping up, you know, at ABC News. So, so my question is, and I think that the, that categorization, at least from my observation point, is very accurate. What, can, what are the principles that I should go into the, each of those three different, very different types of conversation knowing? What, what do I need to do differently with each of those to make sure that my message maximizes its uh, outward broadcast but without becoming tainted or without becoming an editorial. You need to educate. If you're dealing with some reporter who is doing things in pace, they pro I mean, they probably aspire on some level to the kind of work that Bill's talking about. But they are too busy, too whatever. So you can engage them. You can you can uh, engage their curiosity. You can educate them. You can tell your stories in the way that uh, you know successfully or whatever. However you. With that, I mean, you, you can sort of take control of the encounter and be proactive uh, and not simply reactive, and also not say, "Well, this guy's a this guy's a jerk. I'm gonna get screwed." You know, I mean, yeah, start out with a couple of simple questions. Say, what, "What do you know?" Or, or test them on one or two things. You know, don't presume that they're necessarily gonna, just do a little range finding. Okay, process again. We're out of time, but I suggest that uh, Gabe and Laura each state their question now, and then the panelists can kind of use that as a benediction for yep. sort of finishing up. Sounds like a plan. Okay, this is a relatively simple uh, yes-no question, I think. Uh, <laughs> so you mentioned that traditional communications training may not be necessary, even advisable. 
uh, for dealing, and, and you made a good case, for dealing with good journalists. Uh, but it does help to identify typical pitfalls, to help uh, identify ways to prepare oneself, and to develop strategies to deal with uh, confrontational and, and perhaps not good journalists, or maybe they're not journalists at all, using the previous definition. You know, using the sort of the philosophy that I don't buy insurance for all the days that my house doesn't catch on fire, I buy it for the one day that it does, would you still, with that in mind, recommend against traditional communications training? Okay, and then Laura's question. <laughs> all right. I actually have two questions here. The first is a real simple yes, no. Is there really such thing as off the record? Um, and the second is, in the dramatization of science, from a young scientist's perspective on everything, it seems like a majority of the media utilizes drama in eye-catching titles and so on and so forth. And you've all talked about maintaining your credibility. So in this landscape of how everything plays out, how do you maintain your integrity in that and your credibility? How do you or how do we? How do you guys? Um, because we're communicating to you um, the science and everything. And often it seems like you, you take one thing and then it gets taken out and dramatized and the end of the world is coming. And it gives the science sometimes a bad name. Um, it may be my perspective, but my perspective is wrong to some extent. But I'm just reading the news articles. Okay, um, uh, traditional media training is uh, uh, not useless, but insufficient. That's what the point is saying. It would, yeah, it'll help you figure out how to deal with the worst case scenario, but it will not make you an effective communicator. Um, off the record, there's on background, there's on the record, and there's off the record. What you need to do is is define your terms with the reporter in advance. That's the rule. That's how it works. When if they say this is off the record, you have to say to them, what do you mean by that? The traditional definition of off the record means they cannot quote you. Period. They cannot use it. They know it, it's in their mind, but they cannot publish it unless, in any form unless they get it uh, uh, confirmed from someone else and, and have a different ground rule. On background means, traditionally, they can use the information, but they cannot attribute to you by name, and so then you have a second step. You have to figure out what attribution can they give you. So on the background requires a second discussion about what is the attribution. And on the record means they can use it and attribute it to you. The problem is a lot of journalists don't know those proper definitions. So it's incumbent on you to say, okay, what do you mean by that? <coughs> a lot of people now use off the record to mean uh, on background, and that's not you know, the proper. But don't be sloppy. You, you have a lot of control over, over those discussions about attribution. Um, how do you maintain your credibility? That's what you wake up every morning trying to figure out. <laughs> and before you get your terms correct with this uh, journalist you're talking to, you have to have decided, do you trust this journalist enough to talk to the journalist at all? Don't forget, you don't have to talk to us at all. None of you have to talk to us. This isn't uh, an investigative story, unless, you know, if we're, if, we're, if we're going after some kind of scandal, 
um, then it will be news that you refuse to talk to us. <laughs> but only if we're going after a scandal and it shows you have something to hide. You don't have to talk to us. You can pretend to be just a bored, uh, you, you're busy or whatever. If you don't trust the journalist, don't talk to them. If they haven't bothered to, to come out and do that. And, and it's certainly true that the, these journalists don't know these terms. You've got to lay that down after you've decided you're going to trust them. But before you talk, if you say to somebody, uh, yeah, I just killed my mother, that was off the record. It's not off the record. <laughs> and, and, and by the way, <laughs> it's not off the record, that's right. And, and by the way, there's nothing wrong, a lot of good science reporters do this, especially in science, you've got to do this, with reporters calling you back after they've written their story to make sure they've got it right when they tried to then boil it down further into their own normal common speak. In other words, there's nothing wrong with you saying, look, after you write your story, call me back and read it to me just so I can make sure you're not wrong. Because one of the things journalists, the, the further they get in the boiling down process, um, the, the closer they get to finally wanting to make sure that at least they're not wrong. And if they're any good, they follow it all the way through the editing, and all, or all the way through the writing of the lead-in on the TV show. And if they're a good reporter, they'll appreciate that offer, and if they're a bad reporter, they'll tell you, no thanks, and then you learn what you need to know. Ed, do you have any final thoughts, comments? Uh, yeah, any given scientist has the prerogative to engage in the world of public affairs or not. I mean, that's just the way it is. And I suspect you've all made a decision to engage in the world of public affairs, otherwise you wouldn't be spending two weeks in this, this seminar. Um, and given that you've made that decision, it clearly is in your best interest to learn how to engage in that world effectively. And so I, you know, I, I agree absolutely that um, traditional media training is, is helpful, um, not sufficient. Um, you can go a lot further. There's clearly limits to what any one of you is going to want to spend your time doing to develop yourself to sort of engage in that world of public affairs effectively. And, and some of that is, as I suggested before, is going to be put yourself in the context of the right team. Because the you know the world's a complex place, and public affairs is going to proceed with or without scientific input. And so, if you believe <laughs> if you believe that scientific input is important um, because it has something to offer to um, ensure that our decisions as society are um, informed by the right data inputs, then it's worth your while to develop or to, to either gravitate towards the right kind of team or to develop. The and perhaps you could expand that to include the institutions of science to to value communication more appropriately. Absolutely. That's it. Thank you. Thank you.